Welcome to the Mad Men Happy Hour, the officially unofficial podcast for Mad Men on AMC. I'm Jim. I'm Aaron. And today we're talking about Season 7, Episode 13, titled The Milk and Honey Route. Root. Root. Are you going to correct my grammar like Don? Damn straight I am. It's more pronunciation correction, but okay. <laughs> uh, what did you think of this episode? I loved it. I thought it was awesome. You I... loved it. Okay. I think you're not in the minority there. Uh, a lot of people like in this episode. In fact, I think the next episode can kind of just fuck around and idle uh, with what they've kind of unveiled here, and I, I'm pretty, I'm halfway to being satisfied. Like you, okay, you would have to be a truly terrible thing next episode for me to. I don't know. I just get. I'm, I just love this episode. Uh, I did not see the Betty thing coming out of this plot. I was not expecting Don's point uh road trip to be so poignant. Okay. And Yeah, I'm I'm mostly with you. I I, I don't know. I've watched it a couple times now and uh the first time I wasn't like I, I didn't really get what was going on so much. Uh it felt just like a very straightforward thing and yeah, there was some emotion in it uh with Betty's predicament, but yeah, I think second watch is better. There's a lot going on here. And and I think the other thing is that uh you know Pete I, I think it's, this could be a Man. false false redemption, but it was nice to see, and I w- would never have thought that two characters I kind of loathe, Betty and Pete, that I would have this positive feeling about them in the penultimate episode. Yeah, I'm still not sure how I feel about Pete and Trudy getting back together. I, I, I think I you'd like be it. a fool to unreservably think that's a good idea. Certainly. But, uh, and the stakes are incredibly high. Uh, what with... Well, yeah, I mean, be, being of... a fool is kind of the problem I have with it. I, I'm not certain that Pete is a changed man, and oh. yet Trudy seems to be. So, like, I think I, he I thinks he's think a she's... changed man. Yeah, I, I kind of want Trudy to not believe that <laughs> because of how horrible he was to her. No, so long ago. And sure, maybe he has changed. Maybe he's not. I just would like Trudy to be a little more skeptical. But and I okay. And uh, yeah, I mean <laughs> I I love Trudy. I want Trudy to be happy. Um I hope Pete is making a change. I think there's some compelling evidence yeah, yeah. that says that he is okay. that he is going to be the one that escapes the the uh Draper orbital pr- trajectory um and safely lands in Wichita. But mm-hmm. I, I would say we'll see, except for we probably won't. Yeah. In fact, I think this was the the swan song for several characters. The only thing that I'm a little bit is is a little sour to me is thinking that maybe last episode was Peggy's finale. I think so. Because I don't see there any room for her in in the the last hour of this television show. Frankly, I don't see room for anyone but Don. I feel like it's going to be all about Don, maybe some Sally in there, maybe some Betty in there. Ooh. Although yeah, I, I, think, I don't. I don't even see Betty coming back, honestly. But if it's, I think if there's any other character besides Don that we're familiar yeah, with, it's Sally. I, and, and maybe I don't even need to see Sally because I thought. Yeah. Although, yeah, come on, we're, he's going to call Sally because he said he would. I'll call you in a week. Okay. And where it's about six days exactly from this, his next check in. So I feel like that unless the next episode is. 
the day, like him just hoboing around for a day. And at the end mm-hmm. of the day, he calls Sally and it's a crane shot zooming out from a telephone booth or something. I don't know how he avoids because that's the one thing that Don can do to kind of be lost in my eyes. Or maybe that's the point that he just forgets to call his kids while they're going through this crisis. Oh, and God. he goes on some. Ver- I don't know. There's a lot of things that can work, but I yeah. feel very confident that this is going to be emotionally rewarding because this last hour I too, was yeah. incredible. I agree. I agree. Um, on on almost all fronts. I'm, like I said, I'm a little skeptical on Trudy, but everything else, man. And that's the thing. We're never going to. We are. I'm confident that we're never going to know about Trudy and Pete. Yeah, I don't think you need to. I, th- I think that question has the right to be asked, but sure. ultimately the answer is not necessarily what the show cares about. No, it's answer an- uh, answer unclear. Yeah. Anyway, who made this episode? This episode is written and directed by Matthew Weiner, and he was joined as a co-writer by Carly Rae, uh, who has got a long and extensive experience writing for Mad Men, uh, she also wrote Lost Horizon last episode, The Forecast. Hmm. Okay, uh, as a staff writer, um, you know her sole her sole writing credits include the the Monolith, your favorite one from last season, mm-hmm. the Strategy. So she also wrote in one episode of the Constantine television series. But it seems like she's mm-hmm. just a uh, a creature of the the Wienerverse. Okay, sounds good. Uh, and directed by Matt Wiener, you said. Directed by Matthew Weiner, I believe okay. we talked about this uh, Carly before. Uh, the, uh, the, the helping him out on no, it was uh, Simichelis's last episode of the Lost Horizon. That mm. I think that it's nice that the Weiner has a woman on to help him write stuff that's that's so heavily reliant on Betty and Trudy's experience here. Yeah, I think so. All right, let's get into the recap. We start off with Don driving down the road. He gets pulled over, and the cops tell him they've been looking for him. Yeah, and that we knew we'd catch up with you eventually. And then Don wakes up in a motel. Sure, it's the, the classic Don nightmare. Mm-hmm. Um, this time about his his past uh, and what he's done, and you know, there's a lot of stuff in this episode about that, which we'll get to. In his dream sequence, he's listening to Merle Haggard's classic "Oki from Muskogee," and he's extolling how in Main Street and and and. The heartland of America, we don't smoke marijuana, we don't do LSD, we don't burn our draft cards, and it's like painting this stereotypically wholesome view of of Main Street America, the real America, sure. if you will. Yeah. Uh, where we live. Middle America. We're real Americans, sure. Yep. But then the whole rest of the episode is essentially this small town running train on Don Draper, one con <laughs> after another, uh, and, you know, uh-huh. they've got... This you know, there's the burlesque dancer at the at the fundraiser at the American Legion. Do you think definitely booze it up? That's for sure. Do you think the Wiener is trying to tell us that you know this? There's a false dichotomy that like you know Pete saying New York's a toilet. This is kind of like a less classier toilet. Yeah, like New York is the the Trump Tower of toilets, and this is like the Portalette of toilets. That things are really you still got strippers everywhere. They're not as attractive. You still got liars and hypocrites and con artists. They're just less better dressed, and they hit you with phone books instead of buying your company out. Yeah, sure, I like that. And if that's what he's saying, then Pete's clinging to Wichita as his perfect destination, his his uh, paradise, the thing where he can kind of get away from Shangri La. Yeah, I that to me that's starting to maybe say that it's it's a it's evidence that the wiener thinks that this is maybe more of a mirage. 
Okay. But I, I don't know. Sure. I, that, I mean, that's where I naturally lean, just because I don't believe totally that Pete's changed, but I don't know. There's a lot of stuff in here that we can talk about. Uh, the, the one thing that I don't like um, in the reading of this thing where the cop comes up and says, you knew we'd catch up to you eventually, yeah. I don't like a literal reading of that. I don't like the idea that in the last episode, Don is somehow going to get caught for the stuff he did in Korea. Um, that they he's, flirt with that tension the entire episode, though. They do. I don't. I don't like that read literally, though. I don't feel like that's a good, satisfying ending to this series. If Don has to pay for his mistakes by going to prison, you know. Oh, well, I mean, I don't know. I, 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 I'm not willing to write off any story possibility. But I think I'm with you that this reads better as this is just something that's always this is something that Don has lived with his entire life and something that this fear. Yeah, something that's going to catch up to him and he'll have to deal with not 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 in a literal way, but in a figurative like within himself, he'll have to deal with this stuff. Sure. And I feel like that's what's happening in this episode. Well, it's him dealing with it. There is a lot of chickens come home to roost. I mean, we started this series Watching Don Draper heroically save the cigarette industry uh-huh. from the scare of lung cancer. That's a good point. Since then, he's <laughs> lost Anna Draper. He's lost Rachel. He's losing Betty. Yep. Uh, why he he himself is you know seems to be as as healthy as the day is long. That's interesting. Yeah, that things yeah, are catching up with him. Serious but chickens. He's not really paying the price. Mm-hmm. I mean. I, he paid, you know, Megan a million dollars and gives away his caddy and he's got no apartment. Like all of that is being stripped away. Sure. Yeah. And that's uh, but but I get what you're saying. Tom and Lorenzo made a great point about him. You know, this this uh, as we have feedback to attest to this title, of this episode is, um, you, you know, a book about being a hobo, like mm-hmm. a guide to being a hobo and, and yeah. doing a, the, the good life. And in this episode, Don becomes a hobo. Yep. He has no job. He has no ties to home. He has no home, no car. He, no he has no car. Uh, he has a clothes on his back and a Sears paper bag. And a fat bank account. Let's not forget That's that. True. I mean, That's at any true. time he rolls up to the precursor of the ATM, R- I guess, the R- bank. Riding the rails <laughs> with, you know, a fat... Although, are we sure that he still has a fat bank? I'm because pretty sure. he has a lot... I mean, I believe what he says, that he had a lot of his money tied up in McCann. And he gave away Megan a million dollars, but he doesn't he was have a, a salary. So he was a millionaire before he met Megan, right? Sure, he was making a salary that whole time. Do you think he was living? He was living so far beyond his means that a million dollars bankrupts him at that point. And even if it does, he got paid out a couple of million from McCann from the deal, just like up front, just like think? Joan, just like Pete, just yeah. Well, everybody they got a got, little bit of that. They got like one fifth. Yeah, I mean, they got half of it. The, the so he, he's got a couple million bucks regardless. It seems interesting that he's sweating Sally for lacrosse money. I think he's trying to teach her something. That could I, be. I don't think he's trying to say, hey, I'm low on money, so yeah, no, you're uh, right. the Spain trip is going to bankrupt I th- me. I think ultimately you're correct, but there is a little bit of ambiguity there. Okay. Because we don't really know how much <laughs> money. Don went from giving away five grand to his bro- to his brother being somewhat painful to at some point he's just mega rich yeah you know somewhere around he also sold his apartment i know that was like seventy thousand. is that what they said 75 grand and how much money do you really need to live like a life of luxury live a life of a hobo yeah well true (laughs) not much that's true not much uh 
anyway, so let's let's talk about that scene for a little bit. They're uh, they're talking on the phone, Don and Sally, and oh no, wait, sorry, I skipped the Pete scene. Yes, Pete's uh, putting toothpaste on a bee sting. Sure. All right, why not? It's the, what's what's the point of that? I don't know. It's like a almost a homopathic remedy, like baking what, what, soda draws the poison out. Toothpaste is like baking soda. It might contain yeah. at the time, you know, bake. Well, I mean, they put baking soda back in toothpaste as like a, you know, whitening okay. agent or whatever. Uh-huh. So maybe it's like treating like with like. I think this makes sense in Pete's head. It does. More than anywhere else. It does. But, <laughs> you know, a lot of Pete's head is being beat by the sun nowadays because of that hairline. Oh, I saw ooh. I saw it recede just from episode 712 to here. Uh-huh. Like that part is a savage gash in his scalp. I love and it. And just a fountain of hair trying desperately to cover <laughs> too much skin. It's... <laughs> it's a thing of beauty. It really is. Um, so, yeah, Trudy comes home and sees what he's doing, and he promptly leaves. Uh, and then afterward, Trudy and her friend are talking about how great she is for not telling her daughter bad things about Pete, essentially. And I, I think that's because she doesn't totally totally believe the bad things about Pete. You know, she still loves him. I mean, yeah, he's done some bad things, but ultimately she still loves the guy. And I, I also buy her reasoning that she doesn't want to poison her daughter yeah. against him because that doesn't help the daughter at all no i i mean trudy's a hell of a woman um yeah. and i expect nothing less from her but then again like a lot of people be vindictive and use their kids in this manner and it's gross yeah i kind of felt like at the end um when she set her friend straight she holds up the apples it was kind of like a how about them apples sort of thing <laughs> plus i think that she's just getting tired of being you know, in in the early 70s, a woman that's divorced and raising a kid on her own is still a thing of astonishment. And, a, okay. you know, a, oh, oh, pitiful, you know, that poor pitiful person. And she's the housewives are being condescending to her and pitying her. And the uh, house husbands are hitting on her mm-hmm. and making her feel uncomfortable. She's just it's you start to see why going back to Pete would be appealing to her. I can't believe I just choked those words out. OK. But, Yep. <laughs> because Shame again, you, but Trudy yeah. is a hell of a woman. And mm-hmm. I just remember like two seasons ago, Don tried to tell Pete that. Like, yeah. you're fucking up, kid. And trying to give him the advice that Pete gave to his brother. Like, you know, it's fun until mm-hmm. it's not fun anymore. And I thought that was a... I mean, I don't know. A lot of Pete's change seems not out of the blue. And as like, it's something that he's finally put together. Um, yeah. Maybe, you know, maybe Bert tap danced his way in his sock feet into Pete's dreams too and told him the best things in life are free because he's got the new time religion. I like what he's preaching. Yeah. I feel like maybe his experience with the real estate agent in California didn't help him or, or I'm sorry, did help him come to this realization. Why is that? Uh, cause that was just another failed relationship that he's got that he thought was great until it wasn't right. And you know, I don't know. I mean, uh, she didn't get him, but then he again he didn't really get her or respect her either. So yeah, it's weird because it kind of felt like they did at the beginning. Yeah, you know, they were both very ambitious. They both but it was had, all surface stuff. Yeah, and yeah. will he do better a second time with Trudy? I don't know. We'll see. Well, we won't. <laughs> we might see. We have an hour to see. Uh, Don and Sally talk on the phone about her backing out of uh, field hockey, and uh, Don has already bought her equipment, and then about a trip to Spain. Don's just basically staying in touch with Sally here keeping up on her life while he's sure. on the road. It's good. It's it's a, it's a nice scene. It, you know, calling your kid once a week is a little rough, but uh, hell, you know. 
for the time, maybe that's that's admirable. And I do like the fact that I know she said it somewhat ironically. It's like, oh, I feel like I'm sitting right next to you. But it was kind of cool that he's it's different from the times he's run away before because he's actually still staying present in his kid's life. Mm-hmm. Now, if next week he d- misses that phone call, because you can imagine that Sally's like desperate, like, Jesus Christ, why didn't you leave me the hotel you're staying with? Or why don't I yeah. have any way to take, you know, to, to get a hold of you, you know, but it's, it's working right now and it seems pretty heart heartwarming. Yeah. Um, like we said earlier, I'm not sure if they're going to do anything with that in the next episode, but even if they don't, I feel like they left it in a, a hopeful place, mm-hmm. you know? Anyway, we go to Betty who is at school. She's going up the stairs and she seems very out of breath and she falls over and she hurts herself. You know, I want to say that this came out of nowhere, but they built, they've actually built a kind of foundation for this with her talking about being tired. And, you know, she said that it, it, she, she confided to Don that she's, you know, starting to feel, you know, he said, so you're just getting, getting old, but you know, this tired and having trouble with the, the hoof and the books across campus. So, and, you know, this stuff also, aggressive cancer like that, just kind of hits you all of a sudden, too. Sure. Yeah. Um, Not not much else in that scene. So nope. let's keep going. Pete runs into Duck Phillips in the McCann elevator. Duck follows him into his office and tells Pete that he wants him to go to Lear Jets and recommend that they hire an in-house marketing manager so Duck can find one and get the commission. Mm-hmm. And Pete agrees to do it. Yeah. Uh, I thought there's a lot of interesting things in this episode. First of all, it looks like Pete swooped in and saved all of Joan's old accounts. And it seems like it. We know the last scene we saw of Joan is her grabbing a Rolodex and leaving. We had a couple people that missed the deadline last week saying, aha, that's significant. Mm-hmm. It's going to, McCann Erickson's really going to sweat those accounts. Not so much. <laughs> Some of them probably, but. Well, I mean, the big ones, not at all. And you wonder. Yeah. Do you think that Pete and Joan had an arrangement behind the closed doors where maybe somehow Joan's going to get a little bit of Pete's bonus money? Or do you think that Pete's just uh, nah, a think, grimy little pimp? I think Pete, yeah, grimed his way in there. All right. Although he claims that he got Burger Chef back. I'm I'm not certain about that. I think it was probably Harry's promise to switch from White Castle <laughs> to Burger Chef. <laughs> Wasn't Burger Chef's Peggy's account too? Because that's it, the other thing is... I thought it was, yeah. He didn't say anything about Peggy. I, I guess if Peggy was gone, he would mention it, but because that's a Duck Phillips connection and all that. I don't, although I don't know if he knows that. I can't remember if he knows that Duck and Peggy were romantically attached at one point. Ah, I don't know. I'm not sure if he's aware of that, but that's he's scary. Drunken dog abandoning asshole, and he he seems manic. Like there he does, yeah. On on first watch, it seems like he's kind of confident and he's the consummate salesman and all that, but. When you watch this the second time, you realize just how truly lost and desperate he is and how much he's heavily drinking and drunk throughout the entire episode. It's kind of crazy. Yeah, why do you think that is? Duck's he just being is, duck? Man, Duck he's seems, just like a, being kind of a he seems like a vindictive, self-destructive, like he's kind of a Don in the way that he's able to accurately diagnose people. Like, you know, he's told Pete last season or last half season, you know, if you got to shore up your family, you got to up, shore up your home life and all this stuff. But... Hmm. You know, he's the guy that abandoned his wife and kids. He abandoned his dog in a big city. Yeah. Uh, he he shits on Roger Sterling's desk. He, you know, kind of takes advantage and uses Peggy. 
I, I don't I don't know. He's he's more of a Don a, a never an eternal Don Draper to me. All right. Or failed Don Draper, less successful version. I do like this globe that opens up into a bar. I think the studio needs one of those. I you know, that uh <laughs> once upon a time we played a game of Sky Mall Bingo. And I do believe you wrested the globe from me. I think uh, so, that was yeah. my grand strategy is to get that, and uh, you beat me. You beat <laughs> I, me like a drone. I got lucky it was on my page, <laughs> my first pick page. Uh, anyway, there is also a mention of uh, a donation to Lincoln Center, which I think is kind of a jab at Duck here, how he's kind of desperately asking for money he's, from He's Pete, essentially basically. asking for charity at the end. Yeah, yeah. he is. Like, uh, please help me out. Look, I would yeah. need this money to get me through the winter. Winter's coming, Pete. <laughs> I need my booze. Uh, then Don's car breaks down while he's on the road. Nothing much to that, so I'm going to keep going. Yep. At the hospital, Betty's doctor asks her to get Henry to come down because there's some very serious matters to discuss about her health. And then we cut to them leaving the hospital, and Henry says, I'm going to sue them or call someone or something. Henry's very angry, and he wants to do something. Well, you skipped a lot of stuff there, but... Uh... No, like what? Well... No, I guess you're right. It does make it, it does a weird jump. smash fault. Yeah. Um, now, I thought it was interesting that this was kind of a callback to season, the early season with Don uh, directly dealing with Petty or not Petty with uh, Betty's counselor. Okay. You know that like ten years later, and the doctor has mortal news to tell her. Oh yeah. And he's like, "You need to get your husband down here." So like, and and he's explaining all this to Henry. And it's Betty is just times. sitting in the foreground. Sure. Yeah, it's... Uh, that's how it was done back then. I just know? thought that was an interesting callback, that she's still, you know, in a matter of her life and death, it's more the husband is seen as the guy who can deal with all this and needs to be here and, you know, shit, what if she was single? Yeah, and it looks like by the end of this... <laughs> they get a priest in there to... <laughs> they they you do. Know, do. You they need a man have, to explain. Yeah, they you just need have a, a stand-in male. I need a man to explain this so uh-huh. he can explain it to you, sweetheart. Yes. Find me a man. <laughs> uh... I forget what I was going to say. Anyway, um, Betty tries to smoke in this scene, and yeah. he crumples up the cigarettes. I like that. Sure. It shows... That's a rational reaction. From Henry? Yeah. Yeah. Certainly. Like uh, it, it's like, you can almost say it's a dick, but in the circumstances, nah. Yeah, it's it's a weird... Like, they both kind of have rational reactions in some way, right? No, yeah. I mean, Betty understands, like, this is my time. I've learned to trust people when they say it's over. Uh, she seems somewhat at peace with it. Uh She's she's grown so much since early early seasons, Betty, when you know, there's a cancer scare way back in the day. Sure. Um and Henry has the a, a similar reaction, um a, an opposite but similarly rational reaction, sure. which is to be angry and defiant and try to resist it. Yeah, and I mean, you know, that's all I mean, this is like season one breaking bad stuff too. Like what do you do in a can't sure. you know, uh you have a, a family member that wants to give up and the other, and you know, I've thought of, I've unfortunately had a lot of experience with cancer in my life and my family and, um, friends of mine. And it's, I, I don't know what you do if like doctor says, well, you got six months to a year, uh, and there's a 10% chance with aggressive chemo that that could be two to three years. <laughs> I, like, I say you party. You go out partying. I know because that's the thing. Like I've, uh, you get your ducks in a row, and then you go out partying. I remember my gr- friend's grandfather took the two to three year gamble, and he's like on his deathbed. It's like I would never, because you know he went through six months of hell with chemo, yeah. and it just didn't work. 
No, it's bad. And but then, I mean, you have some cases where it does work, you know. And, I, that's what I'm saying. It's it all about the percentages. You get a lot more all, time. Yeah. It's, it's all about that. But man, with that was my grandma's case. Is she sure. got a lot more time from chemo? Sure, a year's worth. Yeah. So it's all you know. It's all about your individual diagnosis. But man, what? I don't think any reaction, the whole, like, you know, I think that society has this expectation that you have to fight. You can't give up. You got to get positive attitude. Sure. But I don't know. It's an irrational thing to say, you know what? I'll take my six to nine months of relative good health and then, you know, in this as quick as possible rather than fight it tooth and nail. I, yeah. I'm not saying either one's correct. I just think that it's, it's it felt very real. Yeah, I, I feel I don't know. I'm and, and again, I came in this episode kind of more or less hating Betty. Yes, still still hating uh, Betty. To I the came core. into this episode and like, yes, she's learning psychology. It's all well and good. And <laughs> she seems like she's but I still uh, don't like her as a character. And I don't like January Jones as an actress. And hmm. I it did a 180 degree turn. I have it's same thing with Pete. Like, I feel much more affectionate towards those characters than I did an episode ago. And that's pretty remarkable. Hmm. Okay. Shows you the power of good storytelling, huh? Power of the wiener. Yes. Uh, Don gets a ride to a motel where he meets the owners. He books a room and he gets a vending machine meal. Uh, the worst kind of meal possible. And again, from the beginning, this whole small town experience feels like a shakedown. Like they're kind of making jokes about the car's going to be in there for a while. Yeah. 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 You're going to need to. Don's like, Hey, uh, I, I know my stuff. And he's like, Oh, and yeah, I just, there's like, oh, huh. well, well, we'll we'll give you some uh, roast beef room service, like the the down harm uh, home charm. Yeah. But the whole setup of like, who knows how long this thing will be in a shop? You could be here for day. I just feels <laughs> like feels like the setup, man. It didn't just feel like uh, some folksy people talking no. about talking some real talk. It just no. felt like grifters. It felt it for grifters it felt grifted. more like Carney. Then it okay. felt more like down hard, down home. Wholesome. Yeah, I think I think I'm with you. There's something just not right about the There's whole. There's some shenanigans. Mm-hmm. Anyway, we go to Pete's dinner meeting with uh, Lear Jet's guy. I don't, I don't know his name. They say it, but I forgot it. Uh, he discovers that Duck has tricked him into a job interview. Whoops. Tricked them both. Yeah, yeah. The Lear guy thought that Pete was there for a job interview. You know, the, the funny thing about the Duck Phillips situation is how progressively Pete panics about it. Because, like, Duck is an asshole. Yep. Like, he is gambling with this man's life with no certain ex- expectation for an outcome. And yeah. completely without yeah, no, Pete's I, permission. Uh-huh. Like, this is fine. I mean, this is scummy, but it's fine. But later on, when you find out he's talked to Jim Hobarth about the situation, which maybe that's a lie, too. But if true, my God, he is playing with this man's career. Yeah, that's what I'm trying to decipher is the lie from the truth here. Like... He's lying so much about this job interview and all that, and most of the lies seem to be going, uh, at least after Pete figures it out, going toward the Lear guy. I w- was Jim, or sorry, not Jim, was uh, Duck even in the building for a meeting with Jim in the first place? That's... Like on that elevator ride up? Man, I is had that in my notes actually... to ask that, or if this is this a con, like, the is this a parallel stu- structure that Don Draper with Pete Gamble... Because, yes, you can I, read Duck as being as scamming Pete from the first moment. He's not there. Like, he rides place. that elevator up. He rides it right back down after he's talked to Pete. Or he's been riding that elevator for an hour, waiting for Pete right. to get into the office. Yeah, he rides and waits for, for Pete to show oh, up. Oh, Pete. Right. I'm glad I ran into you. Yeah. I, I feel like that's more likely. It's all possible. <laughs> Let's put it that okay. way. It's all possible. Sure. Uh, 
Betty's back at the hospital. Uh, she's looking at x-rays, and they're explaining how serious this cancer is and the fact that she only has about nine months to a year left to live. And Henry is very angry about that, and Betty is, I don't think, in shock. Henry, Henry describes it later on as shock. I don't think she's in shock. I think she's, I think she's coming to terms with the end of her life. Yeah, I mean, kind of on her own terms. I I don't think that she's got this blank stare because there's no. nothing going on upstairs. And this is everything that happens in this episode is consistent with what I understand to be her character. And I was surprised to find that out as anybody. Um, that of course Betty Francis has got this constitution, this construction to take a hopeless situation with grace and class. And again, you know, like you said, yeah, it's on her terms so. and a lot of her instructions to Sally was wrapped up in we're concerned about her looks mm-hmm. and, and all that stuff. But you know, uh, the toughness and the kind of like standoffishness she had with her kids and, you know, the various relationships she's in and how cold she is, it was a, a huge benefit in, in, you know, dying young and helping your daughter deal with it, come to grips with that. It's all. Man, I'm, not, I'm not sure I'm following you. It was, what do you mean? What was the benefit? The her, her like, being, being this ice queen was has is it has the side effect of her being very strong and emotionally present for her daughter, the and to help her deal with this. So you're saying when she when she does crack and tell Sally in the letter "I love you," that it's more emotionally resonant because it's not something she would typically do. That's part of it, but also like if Betty were not this tough and steely, she would fall apart and be a lot more, you know, not to, to make a pun on last episodes, her studies, but hysterical. Okay. All right. So it's like, I that, see that. So she's setting examples. These for weaknesses and her being able to, unable to connect with her children and all that has been kind of a blessing because, you know, she's got this level of detachment that she can, you know, look at her life and say, you know, I've had a pretty good run and it's going to be over and you're going to be fine because you've already been fine. And with no help from me or your father, you're going to, you know, I, I think there's a lot of that coming through there. Okay. That a lot of her personality flaws turns into strength in a life or death situation. Hmm. All right. Sure. I buy that. We go to Don, who is in bed reading The Godfather, when the maid comes in with a, a message that his car is going to take a while to fix. And he gives the maid some money and asks him to get a bottle of booze for him. Sure. Because it's... uh. So when he says it's it's going to be tough, he thinks he can rustle up something. He's just talking about booze not being available within the vicinity, right? It's not like a dry county or anything. I don't. I have no idea about Oklahoma. It felt to me, because he says later on that he had to walk into town to get it. Oh. And I think maybe it's just a journey to get to where okay, yeah. the booze is. That's fine. I mean, if it's a dry county, I don't think you're going to walk across a county. This isn't Forrest no. Gump. He's not going to so. run across Greenbow to get himself a bottle. No. Uh, and then if if you said that it was Dry County, you'd have to say, okay, well, these Legion, these guys of the Legion are... Our drink, yeah. Just flouting the law completely. Yeah, maybe they do. Uh, they're scoff laws. They are. <laughs> Don certainly is. They got their bottles of booze and their corn-fed strippers, and they're, they're, it's the way they like it. Yeah. So th- th- this guy's name is Andy. Um, not much here. Looks like it's... Uh, out of the ordinary with Andy in this mm. scene. He's just a, like a, a go-getter. A little bit of a, yeah. gold, a golden age Nucky Thompson. Sure. He he needs to 
when Nucky was his age, he was probably a lot better off. <laughs> Had a higher higher position, that's for sure. Anyway, Don goes to the pool. He spots a good-looking woman sunbathing, and her family shows up, and then Don dives into the pool. There's a book on this woman's lap called uh, The Woman of Rome. It is about intersecting lives of many characters, chief among them a prostitute, whose mother is also a prostitute, and an idealist. Comes from a long line of prostitutes. Yeah, yeah, not unlike one of the other characters in this show. Uh, an ideally, uh, also an idealistic intellectual who, after an interrogation during which he betrays his colleagues, becomes completely disillusioned about everything. Hmm. A lot of similarities to Don here. Yeah, and also something that Tom Lorenzo pointed out in their review is that this also could be a kind of ghost of Betty situation because the last time they were genuinely happy was in their trip to Italy. Uh-huh. And, you know, there was a similar scene where Don was able to, like, come upon her and see her as, like, a beautiful woman for the first time again. So this woman of Rome striking, and he has this moment, and then real life comes in, and her husband and kids, and he's like, okay, yeah, I'm not going to Don it up here. I don't typically like the AV Club's takes on Mad Men. I agree. I almost never agree with them. It's not like they're, they're superficial or stupid, but there's something that just doesn't connect with me the way like the Lamberts and Tom and Lorenzo's yeah. and Seppenwalls do. Uh, they do have an interesting commentary on this book and several other points in the episode about European escapism. And one of those things is, you know, this book is the woman of Rome and we know about the, the trip to Italy that he and Betty took. Yep. Um, that, that was a very like renewing sure. escapism moment. Also in this episode, Don's talking about a trip to Spain uh, for his daughter and how he would like to go to Spain. There's, a mention in the the legion with these vets who were talking about like i didn't break the ten commandments really until i got to europe Mm. there's a lot of mentions of europe and escaping and i don't know what it means and they don't say what it means either right but but i i think there is a theme there i don't know if maybe don needs to escape the country to finally escape you know his old life Mm. or what if he's going to try to escape to another land uh that I suppose could be interesting, but, but there's something there and I'm trying to chew that a little bit and figure out what it is. I don't know. I could, I think they're, I think they're overreaching. I you think, th- so? I, I think that the, you can stop there with the analysis of being, this is kind of the ghost of Betty or something that makes him kind of like think of Betty. Okay. Uh, and very not, you know, cause obviously she doesn't really look like anything like Betty, except for she's very elegant and you know beautiful, but Mm-hmm. That's where I think that's as deep as the analysis goes because you're again like what? this European. If I mean it's a simple, it's an easily testable theory. If Don doesn't go to Europe and there's no other mention <laughs> of it, then it's just uh-huh. Dante's Inferno. Okay. Only he's more desperate and and grasping. So what do you make of Don's essentially Don's uh, day being ruined here by her family showing up? Is it Is ruined? There, well, I mean, the, he's his, got moment, the his got... moment is broken, right? Like, this mm. family comes rushing in, and all of a sudden he's shaken out of his his daze, and he jumps in the pool. It felt to me like maybe, you know, going along with kind of the Don likes the beginning of things, it's when things get complicated, when you get family involved, when you get all these other, this yeah, kind of baggage yeah, that. attached that. around a woman, he no longer is interested. I can see that visual statement being made, sure. Okay. Uh, anything else you want to talk about in that scene? Nope. Okay. Then Duck calls Pete, and he tells him, uh, you need to go to another dinner with Lear after you've already figured out this is a ruse. Pete doesn't want to because he, you know, he's got a lot at stake here. He's got four sure. years left on a contract for a million dollars. Yeah. 
but Duck is not really taking no for an answer. And he kind of gets he gets a non-answer here, which Duck implies a yes from. Uh, but I don't know. It's, I don't think he implies it. I think there's no way to say no to Doug, like or Duck at this point. I, I he seems hell bent. Uh, Pete is going to be his bread and butter. Yeah, and one way or another, either Pete is destroyed or he eats. There is no alternative. <laughs> this is the fucking Hunger Games, Jesus. man. Yeah, he is Katniss Everdeen. Yeah, and Pete. Pete isn't really that cold, calculating guy, right? He never has been. Pete doesn't scheme well. No. When Pete schemes, it ends badly for him. Yeah. He's better at work. He can be he can be sleazy and, and pimpy. Oh, yeah. And grimy. And uh, he can be earn he can be earnest. Those mm-hmm. are his two speeds. Calculating, not not really. And he can be charming. Occasionally, Pete is charming. He can be a version and, and, of charming, sure. Like I feel like in his meetings with clients, like that's where he shines. That mm. it, it's certainly a grimy version of him, but I think he, that's sycophant, which is which goes well in boardrooms. But yeah, sure. I don't know if it's charming, charming to those people, but hmm. <laughs> maybe not to the general populace. Sure. Yeah, there's got to be a word for that. That it's like it's not charming in the sense that like Don or Roger is, but it's just like an eager to please. I don't know. Like he's he's your golf caddy. He'll he'll get anything, do anything, and make you feel like a million bucks while he's doing it. Yeah, but he doesn't feel like a Mathis, you know? And Mathis is just much less graceful about it. Well, sure. Whereas Pete is like, I'm going to tell you what you want to hear, and I'm going to give you what you want. Wasn't Lane Price that said, though, the difference in him and Ken were that, you know, you take care and make sure the client's needs and concerns are addressed, and Ken makes them feel like they don't have needs or concerns at all. Huh, okay. Like, that's the difference. Like, Ken is charming. Mm. Pete is grimy he's attentive <laughs> like yeah it's something but no okay. like he's just so something so damn artificial about it yeah it's ro- mm. almost robotic like he i am saying this combination of words that i've heard someone else say that i've probably seen don say before yeah, or yeah. maybe it's his dad because got you know the other bombshell forget pet forget uh the cancer forget the reunion uh the fact that the campbells are ladies men <laughs> yeah, Bud doesn't look like a ladies' man. They don't have a 300-year history of blood and deception and treachery. They have a 300-year history of bush hunting. <laughs> I was like, for fucking real? Apparently so. I always assumed yeah. that was because Pete had a big job and uh, and uh, lots of money. Yeah. Uh, but apparently they're, they're bushmasters, man. I guess so. I wouldn't have guessed. Anyway, uh, Henry has a couple contacts. It's for... like Henry Kissinger. <laughs> okay. Man, sure, yeah. man is a human troll, but uh, by all accounts, he was a ladies' man. Plowing. He, Pl- non-stop he, plowing. He was, yes. <laughs> He's like supernaturally charming and magnetic. That's huh. hard to believe, but there you go. Indeed. So Henry has a couple, not Kissinger, uh, Henry Francis has a couple of contacts for oncologists and is pushing Betty to do something about her cancer, but she is really resistant. She doesn't want to do anything, and she has her children on her mind. This is uh, the bathroom scene. Sure. People remember that. I don't know. I mean, this is just, you know, furthering the idea that they're kind of opposed in their views. And she finally spells out to Henry a little bit why she's feeling the way she is. And, you know, Henry, like he says, you're a lucky woman. You always have been. Well, he's been a very in control man. Oh, yeah. Who has gotten the things he's and he expects, you know, he expects 
to make phone calls and people snap to attention. And this is the one thing, like, you know, when he said, what do you think if Rockefeller would do? And she's like, he'd die, asshole. Yeah. This is, you can't, you can fight City Hall, but you can't fight City Cancer. It's the worst. Sure. Mother Nature. She's a bitch. She is. <laughs> uh, the maid shows up with booze and swindles Don out of another $10. Uh, they discuss how Don got rich, and then the maid takes off. This is the the grammar Nazi scene here, where he corrects him from no more to anymore. Yeah. Uh, what's the deal with that? I, I mean, obvi- obviously Don is trying to help this kid. He sees him going along a dangerous path. Um, I feel like he he maybe sees a little bit of himself in this. Well, Don is kid. a con man. Yeah. And and he wants to kind of steer him away from making some big mistakes. Some obvious mistakes. I mean, this yeah. has the feeling of like uh, Tywin Lannister lecturing Arya about you should say my lord instead of my lord because if you're trying to yeah. you're trying to pass yourself off as a poor person, well, this is the opposite. Mm-hmm. You're trying to be this slick guy, but you're talking like a street rat. Mm-hmm. You need to rate. You know, like I'm I'm trying to you know tell you how obvious you're being. In a in a as non confrontational way as I possibly can. Yeah. Uh, then Pete and Trudy put Tammy to bed, and in a really short scene, Pete looks back longingly at the door as he leaves. Uh, we can see the wheels start to turn in Pete's head. Maybe I can grind my way back into this situation. Well, yeah. I mean, I hate to say it's just all grime because I think there is some some <laughs> element of sweetness to this, you know. I, I that, agree, but like, it's so much more fun to think of it. That's the thing, as grime like little Pete. I I don't know. I'm not a cheater. I find it, it it's interesting to me that Pete married to Trudy uh, got so much satisfaction by being the god king of prostitutes. Um, okay. and, 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 you know, had to pressure all pairs and having sex with him and, and just, that's, the, I feel always, like he's emulating what he's seen. I get it. Yeah. And this, this makes sense. Like it doesn't make sense that the, the, the Campbells are these, you know, lady man, but I, <laughs> yeah, I, I okay. Uh, apparently they are. Um, and then, uh, yeah, I, yeah. He just sees Don and Roger and. Thinks no, that's I what he it. needs to be. I get it. I, and and uh, that's a hard lesson to learn because he was so young and he had the example from his father. And then he goes into workplace and like, well, shit, my dad wasn't anything special. These yeah. guys are all doing this. And he just went along with it. But, you know, I think now he's older and he's wiser and he's like, that stuff is it's just it's just one thing. It's it's all the same. It's like, yeah. I it's can't remember who not. I was reading. I think it was like a rock star or something, and he was explaining about why he settled down. He probably got divorced six months later, but he's like, being with a different woman every night is. It seems like it's like all this variety, but you're having the same experience over and over and over again. Hmm. You don't get into any nuance or not anything. being able to get it up because you did too much coke. <laughs> like, <laughs> being a bitter, di- crushing disappointment, uh-huh. and. <laughs> You know, uh, throwing her out of the hotel room at two o'clock in the morning. But it's you only get complexity and new and rich experiences in like a relationship kind of context. Okay, you can debate that point back and forth. But yeah, yeah. I do think that like, yeah, like 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 Pete was burnt out and like tired of all that and saw that that's like, you know, those that's one of the things where everything that glitters is not gold. Does it have anything to do with him coming back to New York? You know, he's called the city a, a pit. Um, 
he seemed to enjoy it much more in California. I felt like when he came back, he wasn't as interested in that. Well, and like he even said himself that I thought and... California was this rewarding experience, but now that I'm back, I'm like, that was, you know, a fantasy or, or whatever. So I don't know. There's something. It yeah, is he... weird that, uh, I, you know, Megan made the same comment, or Megan's sister, that this, the city's poisoned people yeah. or, you know, you've it, it's, it's about this grimy city. So it's like, Garrett, you know, there is something to that about, like, the corrupting force of this cosmopolitan lifestyle. But then again, you look here in uh, Alvin, <laughs> Oklahoma and yeah. is things that are, are things better. Are people happier, more content? I don't know. doesn't seem like it. How, how do you know? People are know. assholes everywhere you go. So, and people are nice everywhere you go. Yep. You know, there is also true. All sorts of people. Anyway, Don eats another vending machine dinner in his motel room when TV breaks and he goes to the office to ask for a new one where he fixes the typewriter for the proprietor's wife. She tells him about a meeting at the Legion on Saturday and then gets him a new TV. So Don starts the episode reading The Godfather. Yeah. His TV quits in the middle of an episode. Is this Wiener giving a wink to his old boss on Sopranos? Ah. <laughs> sure. I like that. I think so. I, I didn't mean, even think about it, but yeah, why not? That that seems a little uh, a, li- a little uh, homage-y. Uh-huh. Yeah, so the, the TV show also places us in a, a rough date here. Uh, I don't know the exact day in which it aired, but that, that show that's on TV is Red Fox's appearance on the Flip Wilson show, and it happened in October 1970. Okay. So... That makes sense, because... Yeah, we're somewhere late fall. Because, uh, you know, Don and uh, his daughter, Sally, were having a conversation about, is it cold there yet? Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, that's that's October-y type of weather. Yep. Uh, and we know, obviously, that Don has had a ton of experience with typewriters, and I guess he's he's pretty handy. Yeah, know? I mean, that, that one general. time where he just emasculated Pete... They're at the party, and the, the, the faucet's all broke, and Don just whips off his shirt, goes down to the wife beater, <laughs> right, and goes yeah. to work with Pete's tools and has it fixed like that. Yeah. Yeah, he's yeah, always Pete's... been shown. That's one of his uh, defining characteristics. He's good with his hands. Sure. You know, he probably got that. Growing, growing up at a whorehouse, whore fixing that toaster. His dad's not fixing shit. You're going to get electrocuted, or you're going to fix the toaster? Or his, so, his uncle, whatever it was. Yeah, it's, it's yeah. his uncle. He's not fixing shit. Uh, anyway, Pete's eating... Pie in Trudy's kitchen. She comes in, turns the light off, and then he says, Hey, I'm eating here. <laughs> he invites her to dinner with Lear, but she says no, and then uh rebukes him for having a rose-colored view of the past. Sure. And then he leaves. The, you know, Trudy's not a fool. I desperately want to know what happened to the other pie. <laughs> her friend took it, right? I she said, You don't want to know what happened to it. <laughs> I do want to know. Now that you've said that, I do want to know. Didn't he say something about? I thought this was all set up of that that uh, Pete's daughter baked him this pie, or maybe helped with the baking of the pie. Oh, really? Because it's something like, "Don't forget your pie." That what's her his daughter? And she should have come in, in the middle of the scene and smashed a beer bottle in. <laughs> Here, take this fucker. And I don't know if this is accurate or not because I I didn't you know I wasn't as troubled about the missing pie as you, but I think the yeah, implication yeah. is the first pie was really fucked up. It was an okay. a, it was an abomination. It was an affront to God and man. <laughs> And moms and, and apple pies everywhere. Sure. Yeah, all of That's it. That's an assault on America. The Easily. integrity of the pie. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Yep. Uh, anything else you want to talk about here? Uh, this, this rose-colored view of the past? Well, the fact that, like, I think in other seasons, Pete would be just fucking a dick. He There had been beers put in pies, yeah. and he would have taken another cheap shot at Trudy and hurt her. Mm-hmm. And here he's like, 
even before he has the later epiphanies, he's like, okay, yeah, I guess I'm out of here. Good night. And he leaves. Do you think that's what contributes to her eventually taking him back at the end? Well, because obviously her stance changes, right? From this scene to the end. It does. So somewhere along the way, she's realized that he's serious about this. Yeah. I mean, well, we'll wait till the later scene to kind of okay. more fully develop my thoughts on here. But no, I, I thought took it as sign as Pete actually growing. I also like that there's a lot of the, you know, television going off and lights being flipped out metaphor, mm-hmm. uh, like the at the Sterling office uh, last week. And here, like, it feels like the met, the lights on Mad Men are metaphorically being turned off. Do you think that has anything to do with who we'll see in the final episode? Think Don's not going to be in the last episode? No. <laughs> I mean, if you had a theory that anyone the lights are turned out on will not be, appear again, I would I'd like that like theory. Peggy Campbell. Yeah, or, or anyone Peggy seen Pete. walking out of a door. Yeah, like yeah. that. Like So that would take care of Joan. So that means Roger, Peggy, Joan. Betty. Betty. She kind of walks off the Pete, kitchen here. Yeah, they're all, th- these, are, these are all people that we're not going to see again. Yeah. I mean, that's mostly what leads me to the idea that maybe Don will be the only character or potentially Don and his kids. It would be interesting. It would be interesting. So Sally and her friend come back to her room at school and find Henry there. And he tells Sally about Betty's cancer. And he asks her to persuade Betty to get treatment. And Sally doesn't cry in this scene, but Henry does. In the the rare breakdown of Henry. And that's... That's why I, I guess I was grasping at some of these concepts when I'm talking about Betty and her character weaknesses being character strengths because, you know, Sally can't ever be the kid. She is here stuck in a position comforting her stepfather. Uh, and you yeah, can tell really this weird. is painful. Like, I thought it was a really interesting choice to have her shrink into herself and cover her ears yeah. like she physically and articulate. Like, I can't hear you over the buzzing in my ears. I thought that was all great and was very well acted, which is going to remember that later when I say some maybe unkind things about the performance at the end. But oh I, no, I thought this was all was was all really good. Yeah, I thought it was great to see Henry break down. Yeah, you know Henry is a guy who has been stoic this whole time, and yeah, uh, to see him and you know I mean. You could always tell that Henry cared about Betty, and this is the final manifestation of that, I think. You know, in the ultimate dire circumstance, it's good to see Henry and and how much Henry cares. Sure. No, and that's something we've always wondered about. Like, you know, what is his feelings towards, you know, Betty? But yeah, I mean, he seems like he's true blue. I, yeah, I think so. Like he just loves her, and he's always loved her. Whether she's got a thyroid problems, she's ballooning up, or whether mm-hmm. she's dying of cancer, and she's a tragic figure. She, he just loves her. He loves him some Betty Draper. He does. Sorry, Betty Francis. <laughs> Don's car is fixed, and he's about to leave. But the owners ask him to stay a little bit longer so he can go to this vet meeting and to also fix the Coke machine. What Which, do you make of the Coke machine? Uh, well, first of all, he's finally getting the work on. Coca Cola. Uh-huh. Uh huh. I also thought it was another interesting callback where Pete says uh, he's when he before he realized ducks full of shit. He's just kind of like telling him, catching him up on news, mm-hmm. and he's like, you know, there's even whispers of Coca Cola. Literal Jim Hobart just goes around. Coca Cola. <laughs> uh, I can't get any work done. It's no. constant. I don't know. I mean, this was kind of surreal. Him wanting to stay for this benefit and. Again, this felt like, hey, this guy's got money. He's got a new caddy. He's staying here, not oh, concerned. Yeah. He's not. Ma- he's retired. Like I'm going. To, we're going to take him for a bit of a ride. 
There's no doubt he invited him to that specifically to get him to donate. Yeah. Um, I assume his wife told him that Don was military, right? Like, we don't see that happen, but in the typewriter scene, she asks. Like, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. You yeah. in the military, right? Do you learn to fix typewriters in the military? Right, right, yes. Or are you going to type in the military? Yes. What, so I assume she told him. Do you think it's possible that this Andy kid is somehow in cahoots with these guys? Because he, he's also working at the a Foreign Legion place, too. That's true. He works at the hotel and... Yeah. So it's like, I wonder, like, when Don's saying you need to get away from this place or you can't come back, I wonder if it's more like... It, you know, and there's no way we're going to know this for sure. But what if Andy literally is Don and he's in a situation where he's being raised by this pack of thieves that doesn't. I mean, this is ridiculous. I can't even I'm going to. Con- the only reason I'm continuing to talking is because it'd be really shitty podcasting. And I want to make Jim make an edit. But I just had this ra- random thought of like, maybe this literally is like a Don Draper situation. This is Andy stuck in a whorehouse. Mm. miserable and he needs to get away from these people more than he needs to get away from his life of crime he seems like he enjoys it too much though you know well, like he's he's in on it it's not yeah. like he's in a the way reluctant don, kid moping and, and, around you know, the like house. Don, don is like please don't touch me to these prostitutes this yeah. kid's like yeah bring Give on me, the grift and yeah let me get my grift on sure um anyway so yeah he he agrees to go to that and we'll see him later there uh-huh Henry comes home with Sally, and Betty sees her, and she goes straight to her room without a word, and then Sally sits down at the kitchen table with her brothers in a pretty touching scene. You know, they don't understand what's going on. Sally does, yeah. and she's there just being with him. I and thought that was nice. She's smoothly shifting into the mom role, just as she did with, That's with also Henry uh, before. And, you know, this is... I, I love how they stay true to Betty's character, because this is kind of a bitch move. To immediately see Sally come in and like just shift into ice queen mode and and glide off, but that's the way she would act. Finding out that Sally had gotten an F on a report card, it's the way she acts when. I mean, that's the criticism. Is like mm-hmm. it's the nuclear option all the time. The, you know, Bobby gave your sandwich away, freeze him out. But on this, this that's the okay. thing. Like this is appropriate. I, yeah, and I felt like she's walking out on henry here not on her daughter like sure fuck fucking henry i can't believe that you went around me but she and told my daughter this thing that i wanted to tell her in my own time she's got this tough steely ice queen exterior that is going to be useful and and helping sally be strong but it's the same yeah. thing that causes her she doesn't have the, the emotional grace to separate i'm furious at henry with my daughter found out i have cancer there's no sense of balancing those two realities out. She can't do it. Sure. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. Like, this is a great, I love Betty now. Like, I feel very warmly towards her, even though all of her warts were still on display. Yeah. It's they've just, done a marvelous job of turning Betty it's around. It's appropriate context. You know, <laughs> yeah. finding out you have nine months to live excuses almost anything. I think so. I think so. Uh, Don shows up at the Legion, which is actually a fundraiser. And uh, Don donates $40 and gets into the mix. Mm-hmm. Starts, uh, boozing it up and talking with people. He's no, he's very uncomfortable. You know, he's got a Dick Whitman on this trip, and now he's having to embody Donald Draper, and he doesn't like it. He's very reluctant. Well, okay, so I, I think there are maybe a couple of reasons then that he's reluctant. I think the other reason being he's in a situation where potentially he could be found out. Sure, and that's definitely, like you said, tension they played with in the episode, yeah. Yeah, so that's that's scary for him. Uh, Then we go to Pete, who is at dinner 
but it's not with Lear. It's with his brother. Uh, Pete wonders why he's not satisfied with what he has, and he ruins his brother's evening. <laughs> or did he? Did he save his brother's he life? May, he may have saved his brother from ruining his own evening. Yeah, I think that's interesting. That's a cool thought experiment. If I'm ever tempted to cheat, mm-hmm. uh, have that experiment of like just pretend that your wife or girlfriend knows. And How now do you does feel? it does it feel fun? Yeah. Uh, it's only you know, and then they and they always do, right? They always do. What yeah, everyone about? finds that eventually if you're leading oh, I, a double life so, yeah. you, and you're intimate with a person, that will come out. Yeah. I mean, if anything, it comes out in how you act around them and like y- you figure it out, I think. Sure. Yeah. So I don't know. Uh, his, his brother seems to <laughs> be totally OK with it. And we find out a bunch of stuff about their father here in this scene, which we've talked about. Uh, so we can go back to the Legion, the the people at Don's table are kind of reminiscing about uh, their battles and stuff like that. And they call everybody's drinking Lone Star because nobody's in anything snooty. That's right. Uh, what's Don drinking? Is Don drinking whiskey? He's drinking Lone Star. Wow. Or Canadian okay. club. When in Rome, what do you call a Canadian club? Like Boilermaker in a Lone Star. <laughs> Disgusting. A burning Texan outhouse. <laughs> Yes, the Texas outhouse. The Texas outhouse Even when outhouse you're in bomb. Kansas. <laughs> but Lone Star. Sure, I got you. Sure. Uh, so they call over a guy who was in Korea, and they chat for a second. And then uh, a cake with a dancing girl inside is wheeled out, and the show starts. Don's real nervous here while he's talking to this guy from Korea. And then he finds out, oh, oh, he was stationed way after I was. Not not going to figure me out here. But they did play at that. Like, let me see your face. Why are you being yeah. so... Yeah. Almost like, oh, I recognize I, you. Yeah, that would have been interesting. I knew Don Draper. You're not Don Draper. It would have been interesting, but also it wouldn't have. Too much of a coincidence for me. And I just love the way the, the Matthew Weiner just paints these pictures. Like, the kid in the 10-gallon dr- drum, or the 10-gallon hat <laughs> just drumming, and he's uh-huh. just completely like, God, when can I go home? Uh-huh. And the burlesque He's more dancer. like, God, when can I get out of this town, is yeah, what he yeah, is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and you got the burlesque dancer, and like this is, I, this is just a very specific setting and sense of time and place that he nails. And like, and I feel like Don this- Draper with this painful, forced, plastered smile on his face. He, yeah hates this until at the end when he finds out like how it's good uh-huh. and then he's smashed with the phone book in the face it's a really whiplash emotional experience for poor don seems like it yeah uh and i man i guarantee don has seen better things than what's going on at this place like this is a fucking treat for these guys yeah they are. can't believe it their minds are blown yeah don's sitting there like i lived in new york come on yeah i mean a burlesque a buller burlesque show is different than like a strip show oh certainly yeah yeah like the you know they're used to at the sinking ship i used to go to spend a lot of thursday nights there it's where you know uh i had a regular drinking group we meet on thursday nights sinking ship indianapolis had burlesque burlesque shows on thursday and it was always an interesting good time so i i was wondering if there was a little bit of like don like oh these these hicks they think they're living it up but also i think that's just part of the burlesque experience it's not like okay. a titillation so much as it's just fun for everybody involved. Sure. It's m- more like a circus sort of thing. Uh, that's like, oh, wow, look at to the, There's something to the insulting performer. about circuses? I, you know, I like there's too, too much elephant. Anatomy. I think, I, <laughs> I think okay. that's where you're going. Come uh-huh. on. Let's... Well, she, she should have hidden her trunk better. That's all I can say. <laughs> well, uh, now, 
<laughs> now you've you, you've you've gone you've really opened up some interesting possibilities yeah like wow. maybe this I is actually a drag burlesque show this is like progressive as fuck now there you go don's never seen that Mm-mm. anyway let's go to pete's hotel room yeah uh sure let's 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 do it all right duck shows up there. rent the pit yeah he's, he's staying at the carlisle duck shows up angry that pete didn't go to the dinner and he tells pete that he just got him an amazing deal Pete says, you are drunk and menacing. (laughs) (laughs) So, so proper from Pete. Um, He's he's got an amazing deal. He's going to go to Lear and pass the contacts of important people over to McCann. Like he's talked with Jim. Maybe, maybe he's talked with Jim. Who knows what this, like the whole, (sighs) that's the start of my problems are like, what if this is all bullshit? Yeah. Like Pete is, he's got this thing. He's going to move to Wichita, and no, no, you're not. This is Duck didn't get it. He's just been trying to desperately put something together. Then how does that look to Trudy? So what's Duck's end game here? I mean, obviously he wants Pete in this position so he can get the commission. Sure, he's a headhunter. Now it might have just worked out for him amazingly, where Pete can schmooze all these contacts who are going to be flying in these planes, hand them to McCann, and he'll get a cut of that too. Yeah, potentially. If he's actually tricking Pete, and there is no real job. He's just lying, trying to lie his way into something. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, is that just literally his end game? If if I can lie enough, maybe this these pieces will come together. Because I don't feel like there being no job and him lying to Pete about this could possibly pay off. I mean, Pete goes to the guy and he says, "Hey, I hear you got a sweetheart deal for me," and the Lear guy's like, "No." We hired the other guy because you said you weren't interested. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, again, I don't I don't know enough about the situation if, if, and moving parts to know, but I'm saying that like the 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 threat is there and it's on the table and it's real. That it there's is, a little I bit guess, of yeah. uh, you know, if if you if you're seems like everybody really liked Pete and everybody's really happy at his second chance. But if you're a Pete hater, mm-hmm. a, a dyed in the wool, you're you're a McDonald. And you're still you're still salty about the uh, the guest right three hundred years ago. Uh-huh. I think there is enough evidence to suggest that this could be a colossal clusterfuck. That there is that that Doug has maybe he's just spiteful. He's lied and negotiated, and he's drunk, and he insulted the guy. And Pete's going to accept a job that no longer exists. <laughs> I think that would be amazing. Yeah, if they come back next next week and. Pete's still like working at McCann and we like find out kind of through osmosis that that job has just crumbled. Like it was never there. I don't think we will. I, I don't think so either, but I think it'd be funny. That it, but if you, if, if it warms the cockles of your heart to think of Pete miserable, I okay. think there is enough. I think, I think he, there's a broad enough canvas to paint that painting. I think Pete takes Trudy and Tammy moves to Kansas before he finds out that there is no job there. Mm. That's what I hope for Pete. I, <laughs> sure anyway um i i didn't see what pete was watching here but ultimately it doesn't matter because the date is already found out yeah through another tv show um it looked like sydney poitier was in really yeah it was in that movie but i don't know what it was anyway we go back to the legion and floyd tells dan uh don sorry a story about how he ate a few german soldiers i think i think that's i it. think he calls it bouncing them. I don't know what bouncing means in military terms, in like the slang 
of the military. I know when you bounce a router, you uh, you turn it off and turn it back on. So that's not it. No. And but no, I think the clear implication is he ate four German kids. I think so. He, he and his buddies ate a bunch of Germans. Or they didn't have enough food and rations to 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 feed prisoners, so they made him dig their own graves and then just killed them, murdered them. Okay. Which is still a massive Geneva convention. I mean, that's that's a sure. war crime. Yeah. So but kudos to him for doing what you got to do is what the buddies home. say. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and they say the same thing to Don when he tells him the story of how he got home. And I gasped when he said, I killed my CO. I'm like, Hershey's part two. <laughs> like, like, you know, uh, you actually killed your own CO, which is interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought that was going to be the beyond the pale. But then when he actually told the story and, you know, there is more to it than that. I'm like, okay. And it does feel like, I don't know. He enjoyed this absolution he got from these men. Yeah. I was going to say it felt to me like because the smile admitting it and, and being like, he said, absolved of, of his sins. And the smile he had when he was singing over there with them was much more genuine than the plastered burlesque dancer smile. Oh yeah. So I feel like that there, that the evening turned the corner. He just didn't know it was about to turn again. Yeah. Uh, do you know what song they're singing here? Over like, there. Over there? Is what it's yeah, that's like the famous, I think it started in World War One, where the okay. Yanks, you know, that's like, yeah. Sure. And I think it, yeah, that's, yeah. No, it's 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 a famous World War One Doughboy song that's then been recycled for a lot of foreign wars. Oh, okay. I didn't know that. Anyway, Betty goes to talk to uh, Sally about the cancer, and she tells her that she's ready to move on and gives her some sealed instructions to open once she's dead your mom uh, gives you that you open it right away which is what sally does i do yeah. too like is there a person on the planet that would not open that right away i don't think so i mean it's like telling a kid like here's your christmas present in october sure they're gonna fucking open it if you're gonna do that you need to involve a third party yeah like preferably some not kind to be of released upon or preferably some kind of escrow the service that you've you've paid in advance yeah. because yeah if you give me anything i'm going to open it up yeah because seal it in if a it's something good box. then you know like if it's something's going to improve my standing with you why the hell would i want to put that off until you're dead and if you're going to be a dick about something, then I'd rather not be nice to you. I want to you screaming to hell with <laughs> yeah. a proper proper rebuke. So yeah, like no, uh-huh. you're not gonna you're not gonna respect her wishes on that. Sure, no, I'm, I'm with you. I wouldn't either. Uh, in the middle of the night, the vets come into Don's room and accuse him of stealing the fundraiser money. And they hit him with a phone book, and more importantly, they take his car keys until he gets him the money. How'd you like this scene? Uh, I mean, I immediately realized what had happened, that the kid did it and set, set sure. Don up. So it's fine. Uh, it was kind of interesting to see that kind of violence on Mad or on Mad Men. Yeah. Like it's almost a breaking bad level of, uh, and he, that's the other thing. This old dude, I thought it'd been really cool if Brian Cranston played that role <laughs> the whole time I watched. Cause he has kind of like that Cranston vibe and then imagine okay. him. Picking up the phone book and, and belting Don, like I would have killed it for that casting. That'd have been so awesome. Yeah. Yeah, I could I could buy a Brian Cranston in just about any role. But I think especially the Alvin from Oklahoma or I mean I know this Alva Oklahoma soldier. I can't remember the old guy, the the mm-hmm. German eater. Yeah. 
uh, got a, the noshed on sauerkraut during the war. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Uh, there, yeah, I, I, and I can say that because I'm a German American. So fuck off, <laughs> boom. Okay. Um, yeah, no, I, uh, I, I liked it. It, it felt a little out of place in this world, but Don has this is stuff he's done before. Like there's that teenage grifter couple that he fell afoul of, that drugged him and then robbed him like two seasons ago when he was kind of oh, going yeah. going through his crazy That's period. Right. Mm-hmm. So every once in a while there is he's he gets experience with these kind of like shocking reversals. Yeah, it, it felt almost like the mob coming in, you know, and, and shaking him down. <laughs> right. Uh to me. That's what I was thinking the whole time. The Godfather. It's right there, yeah. front and center. Exactly. Uh so Pete shows up at Trudy's house at four AM, another middle of the night scene here. Tells her the news about the job offer and wants Trudy and Tammy to come with him to Kansas. Somehow this works. Uh, his desperate plea for the return to his former life and their marriage and family works on Trudy. You know, it's what I thought was really interesting. As I saw on Reddit, someone made a direct comparison of this with Don's carousel speech. Because hmm. Trudy was talking about, like, I don't see things with nostalgia or sentiment. And then... Pete's like, why can't we get back on? Our lives are only half over. Why can't we have more? Why can't we indulge in nostalgia? Things can be different this time around. We can see the world in rose-colored glasses together. And that Don gave that speech, and it was wildly successful in the boardroom, but ultimately it was hollow Mm -hmm. in relation to what you knew was going on in his life. Whereas, you know, this was Pete's pitch of his life, and it ultimately might redeem him. I thought that was pretty cool. Like, I don't okay. think there's any explicit callback to the carousel speech, but I think there is hints of it in the room for sure. Yeah. I mean, you know how much he tried to emulate Don. So also is this, is Pete telling the truth that, you know, I love you and I've never loved anyone else. It feels like it, but he said that almost exact same word to Peggy a few seasons back too. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. He like was you so under, like, and like you understand me and you get me and I've I love you. Uh, even while he was married to Trudy, so it's like that's one of the evidences that this is Pete having a little bit of mania. Uh, the yeah, other but thing Pete has also had a lot of time to think about it. You know, the other thing that took my breath away is when Pete said, "Tell Tammy her birthday wish came true." I'm like, Jesus Christ, Pete, this better work. Because if you invoke that kind of shit to a kid, you can't come back from that. You tell no. a kid their birthday wish came true, and then t- six years later, you split up. She's going sure. to hate you, man. Yeah. That is, that is, whoo, that is verbal napalm you're playing with, man. Yeah, I just, I, I'm resistant to the idea that Pete is a completely changed man and this is going to work out, even though he has shown signs of, of redemption. Yeah, like I said, and he's like, saying I, all the right things, but you know, what what is the crucial difference between Pete's speech to Trudy and Don's speech to Diane? Like, you know, this is I've I've learned that this this isn't my first thing. I'm I'm ready for this. Like I, again, I'm not saying that because I was genuinely moved by this whole experience and uh I think this is the, certainly the best case outcome for Pete. Uh, it's kind of a, you know, a, a tragic end for Trudy, but I hope it works out. Yeah. I, I think the, the difference is Don, like I, I can't pin down how well Pete understands himself. 
I'm trying I'm trying to figure out if Pete has gone through the same process that Don has gone through uh, and that has affected him in ways to where he now understands what he's lacking, uh, what he wants. And I, I don't know that I buy the, the only real indication I've seen of that was in this episode. Mm-hmm. And so it's a little bit of a stretch for me to say that having only seen that in this episode, it's an actual true thing that he has changed. No, and that, and that he is self-aware enough to understand that now this is the only woman I've loved. The other thing is there in, in episode 609, the better half, you know, duck was still a headhunter and, uh, you know, Pete star had fallen. He was looking around to where he could go from, uh, Sterling Cooper. And he said, the best I can do is offer you a head of marketing job in Wichita. And Pete's like, God, is there anywhere in civilization? Now he's gleeful about taking a job in Wichita because it's going to be away from this toilet city. And so yeah, I think he is definitely changed and he's not as superficial and shallow and he's more flexible. But, you know, again, we're we're hell, I don't know. Maybe they'll get divorced in 20 years from now. Maybe they'll they'll die uh married and happy. I doubt we see him again. I think this is Okay, a, better and, question. And the ambiguity right? is a, is also a perfect like Pete stayed okay. true to his character. He does nothing here that's a betrayal of his basic character. But we still don't okay. know exactly whether he'll end up happy or not. Yeah, I mean that's the question I was going to ask you. Are you happy with this ending for Pete? This this kind of ambiguous ending for Pete. I love it all because I I I honestly I think it's the best case scenario for Don Draper. Po- signs are pointing to some redemption and happiness, but we just don't know. There's also some evidence that shows that he's maybe going to self-destruct again. Peggy, yeah, yeah. she r- ran into McCann Erickson as a rock star, but we also know that McCann has set their heart against her and she's going into and we a saw sexist what with Joan. Yeah. sleaze pit. So it's like that's a triumph for her, but there's also some troubling waters. Joan gets part of her money and bounces out, but what's that going to do to her and Richard's br- dynamic? Mm-hmm. All of these endings that we've got for the people we care about have been some good, some bad, and a lot of uncertainty. And I think that's the best way you can you can leave characters like this. Yeah, so I, I think that's fitting because you can tell whatever story you want specifically. You know, yeah. a lot of shows feel like oh, they need this perfect ending. They need yeah a finality to these characters. Whereas sure. Mad Men has always felt to me like more a story about real people. Yeah, and unless real people die, they continue to go about their lives. No. They make more mistakes. They change. They develop. You know, I I don't think I want to see an actual final conclusion to any of these characters. Right. Well, Doesn't like, seem right for the show. You know, we said last season uh, when Don had the Hershey speech and then he takes his kids at a house in Pennsylvania that that would have been a hell of a finale for Mad Men. Yeah. So with this. <laughs> that's what I'm saying. <laughs> like, that's what you want. You don't yeah. want something definitive. I think you want that. A lot of good possibilities in the air, some troubling things, and like you could pretend that there is another season of Mad Men because there always will be in real life. That's the thing, yeah. If every episode and every season feels like a finale, you don't need the f- actual finale to feel like Yeah, one, I don't need you know? to know Don's okay. I just need to know that it's possible he could be. Okay, I'm with you. Um, Don drops some money off at the... Oh, wait, no. Oh, we the maid get... shows up. Yep. The maid has more booze. Don confronts him about the stolen money. And he tells him to give the money back and leave town. Uh, he also talks about becoming someone else, and it's not what you think it is because, you know, he's done that before. Once you get off that foot, you can't ever – once you, forever it will dominate your destiny. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> Straight up Yodism. <laughs> Indeed. Um, and so he gets the money back from the kid. He drops it off at the front desk, gets his keys back, and then 
The kid's waiting outside for him, uh, asks if he can get a ride to the bus stop, and Don agrees. Uh, not much to go on there, so we'll move back to Betty. As she heads off to school, while Sally's reading her instructions, you know, it's kind of a layered scene here. Uh, her instructions are put her in a blue dress, her favorite blue dress, mm-hmm. uh, get her lipstick, put that on her, sure, and bury her in the family burial plot. Yep. And that all equals Sally crying, finally, about her mother. Uh, complex relationship there between Betty and Sally. Yeah, the direction's kind of weird here because I didn't think she did a great job crying. And I've seen her do this well. Okay. So I kind of feel like it might have been a problem with acting by in an isolation that you don't have like a Don or a, uh, you know, or her mom or Roger or anybody to play off of. But she's gotten too jaded to cry. She's Cheryl Crowed herself. And maybe, I don't know, maybe, uh, maybe she's just cries like, like John Hamm does on SNL. She's just an ugly, all out baller. Maybe this was an homage. Is that, that <laughs> I could believe that too. Really? You think so? I could believe that too. Like really like, It'd been really funny if there's like an outtake in the seat where she just does the, <laughs> you know, like the amazing, yeah, yeah, this John Hamm cracking up off camera. Because uh-huh. I hear everyone's final scenes uh, that like everybody showed up for him. Yeah, it's like I, these big community affairs. I, I could imagine because they did like that's one thing you get from all these cast and crew interviews is how much they love the series and how much they love working together. Yeah, the best shows usually do. Mm-hmm. You know. Uh, Don and the maid pull up to the bus stop. Don drops him the keys to his car and says, don't waste this as he gets out and waits for the bus. And we got a genuine smile from Don. Yeah. A smile looks weird on Don. Yeah. Like, I'm not certain I'm comfortable with Don smiling, but I mean, I guess ultimately I like it. I do too. You know, Don's, Don's becoming happier. He's understanding himself better and. What more could you ask for? What did you think of the uh, Buddy Holly end? Uh, Every day things are <laughs> I mean, I like it. You know, every day things are getting closer or whatever he says. Um, love you, like yours will surely come my way. It, Is that the self-love? Is that the acceptance of the little boy who was Dick Whitman? Sure, I could buy that. Um, I could also buy that it's, it's uh, paying lip service to the idea that the the series is coming to a close. And does Don... Every day it's getting closer. Yeah, there's that too. And that that fact that Don, you know, we're talking about him and his uncertain fate. Like, Don didn't need to save that kid. He just needs to have the possibility in the air. Okay. Is he, you, you feeling what I'm laying down there? Uh, Yeah, yeah. Because that kid's going to drive off in his catalog and Don's going to assume everything went as planned. He's He's going to hope, yeah. Yeah. Uh, what about that song from Betty's perspective? It's a little more bleak if you look yeah, at it as every day, it. everyone's death is getting closer. Uh, yeah. And there's maybe a, sit back and enjoy it for what a you second. What do you think of maybe? Betty's proclamation to Henry when he's like, why are you bothering to go to class? And she's like, why was I ever doing it? Ah, good question. That is interesting. Cause I remember there's a really long NPR series, like six, seven years ago about this young woman who is like 19 and she had cystic fibrosis, I think. Um, whatever destroys your lungs with phlegm and she had just gotten like a heart lung transplant and her plan was to f- graduate college uh because she's only had like a few years to live mm-hmm. and i'm like man 
why would you fucking waste time going to school when you could travel the world or do, you know, just do, do whatever. But I mean, you can claim equally that any of those things are a waste, right? Sure. I mean, it, I, I think Betty's getting some sort of fulfillment out of school. Yeah. Uh, personally. And that she's not, I mean, giving up on that is just also kind of pointless. That's true. She's going to stay home, brush her hair. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's literally just waste the last nine months. Yeah. That's an introduced philosophical statement. Why am I doing anything? Sure. Why not just sit and become a blob and wait to die? Yeah. I think I'm going to say anyone anyone asked me to give an account to myself. I'm going to say, why why am I doing anything? (laughs) Why does anyone do anything? Yeah. What kind of answer is that? I'm sure we'll get What kind of answer is anything? We'll probably get into that if we ever talk about true detective. (laughs) Anyway. Yeah, Betty, that's what she needs. She needs Russ Cole in her life to talk things over with. Oh, yeah. That'll help her out. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Child psychology might not be enough. (laughs) Uh, All right. That's the end for the episode. Before we get the feedback, I just wanted to take time to extol the virtues of Club Bald Move, which you can find information about conveniently enough at club.baldmove.com. It's just a buck a month. If you go for the the yearly option and what that gets you is early access to the podcast in form of uh, our video. Like it comes out, you know, the video is we record in real time. You're actually in us. No, you're not. Whoa, in us. whoa, 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 whoa. That that is the hey that's the ten million dollar chic offer uh, for a dollar <laughs> a month. You get to come in the studio with us and watch us record the podcast, which oftentimes is hours in advance of when the actual uh uh, episode drops and also you get to see us fuck up and screw up and make technical errors and it's a good time had by all you get mm-hmm. lunch with Jim and Aaron a freewheeling weekly semi-weekly romp in the studio where we just talk about life and television and movies or whatever uh, you get access to the bald move archives you get ad free podcast feed that's surely worth a buck a month you don't want to listen to this crap anymore and also the most important thing is it keeps our lights on like we don't have any uh, sponsors for Mad Men, so Mad Men is 100% covered by the, your generosity as an audience. So if you haven't taken a look at it now, if you think our podcasts are worth supporting, if you don't want to hear me drone on about this crap ever again, please go to club.baldmove.com. We would really appreciate it. Want to get some feedback? Let's do it. Dan from Manchester says, Harry Crane refers to McCann as mission control while Don stares longingly up at a plane in the sky and sees Burt Cooper, who died watching Man Land on the Moon. We then hear Bowie singing us out of the episode, which can only mean Don is now a major Tom. Ground control is calling him back, but he's floating around lost in a most peculiar way. Sure. While he was pushing against the window, we felt trapped in the McCann capsule. And as Bowie sings, he is now dared to leave that capsule and enter the wide open space. I like that. Pretty good the tying in of those themes. Yeah, no, I agree. That's roughly the idea that I got last week. Uh, I, are you Lane pricing up that capsule word? Why did I say Cap- capsule? Did I say capsule twice? Yeah, you did. That's more of a Sean Connery. <laughs> okay, yeah. Okay, Personally, yeah, I give it one chance in three. <laughs> uh, he continues. You're, I don't. I'm sorry, Betty. You have cancer. <laughs> <laughs> it's aggressive. You have nine months. <laughs> Money penny. Uh, I think I don't really like the Diana storyline, although I'm sure the wiener will make it pay off. Ultimately, I can only hope that Don will now start looking for peace within himself on his travels rather than Diana, which I presume she's a metaphor anyway. Seems like startling insight from Dan a week ago. Does this road trip make the Diana stuff pay off? Because, man, sometimes I I don't feel like it. (laughs) 
yeah, that was like a couple hours. We're not going to get back from our life. But did we need to experience for the for? Could he just spring this episode on us? Uh, I mean, I don't know if he can. I don't know. I always felt like this last season, and, and really even the season before, have been about Don being lost. Like, I mean, that's not sure. a revelation that that he's had trouble with women, and that's a root cause of some of his problems. Like, the Diana stuff didn't feel very necessary to me. Well, it's just like, you know, Tom and Lorenzo, especially the last few seasons, have kind of been dissatisfied at the show, and I've seen a lot of people beat the drum of... Oh my God, nothing's happening. And then you get to these last few episodes and they're amazing. Yeah. Is that the equivalent of like stretching before you work out? Like you don't want to do it. You could skip it, but then you'd pull a muscle and get hurt. Like, is this part of the Mad Men? Like, like there's some kind of meditative quality to going through all these diversions and kind of like dead ends and emotionally ambiguous to kind of like get you in the right frame that then the wiener can then weave a spell and, and, uh, you know, hit you in the face of the phone book. Is that what we need? I suppose there could be. Um, I didn't feel like that though. I, I felt like this would like John Hamm going on a, you know, his version of Rogers LSD vision quest here would have worked without the Diana stuff. Really? Cause him I was already in that, that meeting mindset. with no debt, just heading to California. I don't think would be nearly as powerful as him trying to get the, to uh where was he going originally racine i kind of think she needed Mm. to be the MacGuffin to just make it make sense and the fact that it was him trying to heal but i've had this sentiment the whole time with don like he's looking he's searching he's a wanderer in a way for for the last season like full season seven there was only one there was only one episode this season that i i kind of started feeling a little impatient about everything else i thought was just good enough well, not even just good enough, way above the bar of what I, but again, I'm a famous easy grader when it comes to Mad Men. Yeah, like that yeah. one, that first season when we were just giving out grades, it's like 10, 10, <laughs> take my 10 wiener. Uh, that sounds sexual. Uh, maybe we should move on to Christina S. I've been waiting to see how the women's strike for equality in 1970 would be addressed since it's the backbone or is a backbone so integral for Shirley, Joan and Peggy stories. Hell, even Betty's character with her, I'm not stupid, I speak Italian and new career path. I think it was very interesting that Joan called attention to the strike and not Peggy, who might have been the obvious second-wave feminist spokesperson for the show. Mm -hmm. Obvious at first, but it makes more sense to center the idea of a strike around Joan the more I think about it. In fact, Gloria Steinem, the leader in this movement, actually published a feminist work after waitressing at the Playboy Club. Also, isn't this where Lane Price's girlfriend worked way back then? Joan was more prone to snap, subjected to literally prostituting herself yet again. Men in the workplace refuse to take her on her her professional merits, even though she is doing the work. Peggy seems to pass, since she's simply imitating men in a man's world. Both of these women have always hit the same struggle from different ends. I think you guys have touched upon this before, but I find it fascinating. I continue to love the dynamic of these two from a feminist standpoint, both together and apart. They've got this yin and yang thing going on. Or yin and yin, in the case as the case may be. At McCann, Jones got their office or got her office there with all of her accounts. Why Peggy doesn't have an office and receives secretary flowers? Yet they're still landing in the exact same place on the outside. Until of course Peggy walks in her first day on the job, buzzed with a cigarette hanging out of her mouth, shades on, doing her best Don Draper impersonation. In her mind, it's her effort to stop making men feel comfortable. But that's exactly what she's going to do by acting just like them. 
Of course, we'll see how successful she is since McCann seems to have other plans for her. Except for we probably won't because it feels like we <laughs> yeah, got the last, last scene. We're probably left to infer that. Uh, but what's more interesting to me is the progressive nature of Joan's approach. She's way ahead of her time. Third wave feminism of the 90s that followed the second wave urged women to reclaim their lipstick, their heels, and their cleavage, insisting that you can wear a push-up bra and use your brain at the same time. Anyway, I'm so glad the whole now sort of... I try to do. They, indeed. Yeah. No, I... Yeah. Um, I'm going to move on. Okay. Uh, I'm so glad the whole now strike uh, issue came up in light of these two. As an afterthought, why is it these two didn't actually participate in a strike? Do you think that they perhaps thought they transcended the whole movement, perhaps having making it into agency? Uh, I don't know. They're very busy. Maybe the uh, transcendental nature of their jobs has something to do with it as well. They don't feel as invested in it. Well, that's uh, always been kind of a madman thing. Like, we are concerned with racism, but we approach it in really kind of weird angles. You know, like, there, there's a lot of concern about equal opportunity, but do we really want a black person representing our company? There's a lot of this Madison Avenue keeping up the appearances. Like, our heart's selling us is one thing, but my God, what will the customers think? You know, and I think there's a little bit of that okay. with, you know, because I think you can say that Peggy is fairly progressive, as progressive as a Catholic schoolgirl can be. Uh-huh. Um, but even then, like her experience with Dawn at the apartment where she just couldn't help herself. Um, I, I feel like that's maybe Joan and Peggy. They work in advertising. They can't afford to take a, a stand because if they're photographed and it gets out in the papers and then their clients are all up in arms, I maybe it's that. Yeah, could be. Um, or it could be just busy professional women. Yeah, and they, I mean, I don't know. I, I think she's right about Joan probably being more likely to take this stand. You know, I mean, Peggy, uh, say, say what you want about the actress, whatever. Peggy in this universe is not portrayed as a very attractive person, right? Mm. She's kind of the opposite of Joan when it comes to that. Okay. Um she like like the emailer says doesn't have uh as much of those hurdles to overcome because she's acting and looking uh less threatening to the men whereas Joan is basically the sex bomb who walks in and whether she wants to or not based on her body and her looks is going to get comments hmm. she seems like she would have more invested you know she can't, she can't blend in as easily and and I'm not saying that blending it is the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. Don't don't get me wrong. I'm just saying even if she wants to, she can't. Yeah. So I could definitely see her being more invested in this idea. As to why she doesn't go out, I I think she's just not that invested as a rich, busy businesswoman. <laughs> I mean, I care it passionately doesn't... about a lot of stuff. I've never been to a protest. Sure. Yeah. Been to like one rally ever. Really? For anything, yeah. Um, yeah, so it's like, I just... Apathy. Part of you it. You don't, you don't care that much. <laughs> yeah, I don't know, I just see the way... Asshole. I mean, part of it is, I just also see the way, you know, like, I think protesting meant something in the 60s, because hmm. it was kind of new, like all the social unrest. Nowadays, it's like, I feel like the pow- institutions of power know how to deal with it. You don't think and... you can say anything from a free speech zone? 
Come on, man. <laughs> well, I'm just like, look at the occupy. The last time, like, the occupy Wall Street. Part of that was the movement itself is kind of like they had internal problems, but the media had this narrative that they played that made them all look like fools and idiots, even the ones that maybe had more substantial things to say. Sure. So I feel like that a lot of these protests just fizzle out because uh, they know how to manage them. Yeah. I don't know what I think the next generation of of this is like, you know, just organizing, you know, we cut out the middleman. We don't need the rate. We can raise awareness on uh, websites and social media and podcasts and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. I mean, maybe just talking about these issues openly and honestly is more effective than protesting these days. Or maybe I'm just trying to make myself feel comfortable for lazy and not being and standing for anything. I think that's it. Yeah. There you go. Uh, Lisa LL, uh, which stands for listeners love. Okay. I'd love, I'd love, I'd like to bring up Shirley uh, and give a big up to her for giving the theme of this episode. Advertising is not a comfortable place for everyone. The wiener gave a nod to advertising being unfriendly to blacks with Shirley's exit and people with disabilities with the golf invite to the Avon X exec in a wheelchair, but is least comfortable for Joan. I don't know if I can get the idea of poor put upon Joni. Mrs. Holloway played the game until the game played her from her affair with Roger to career advice on Peggy's first day. I'd make those cute little ankles sing and men like scarves to betting herb, the Jaguar creep for a partnership. Joan has always traded sex for power. Of course, McCann's rabid sexism is not fair, but I like that the wiener chose a sexually complex character like Joan to explore this instead of someone like Peggy, who could fight it with her intelligence and her talent, or Meredith, who's so childlike it'd be easy to emphasize, empathize with her. I couldn't help but wonder if how Joan got her partnership is a poorly kept secret. I can't imagine Herb not telling the entire tri-state area that he spent the night with SC&P's hot redhead. Given the layers of moral ambiguity surrounding Joan, she might have fared better calling a guy and having him break Dennis and Ferg's legs. <laughs> I hope this is Christina Hendricks Emmy reel because she acted the hell out of the episode. I read in one of the recaps that the director and co-writer of this episode are the same team that did the other woman might've heard on this here podcast. Trapel as I, I said that as well. The episode where Joan prostituted herself out. Uh, I thought that was an interesting take that it was, you needed to have Joan kind of rebel against the same patriarchy she spent the first half of this show defending and supporting from her side of the divide. Okay. She's a gender yeah. traitor, and then she essentially reformed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can buy that. And you know, I, a lot of time passes in this series, right? Ten years? So sure. that, that gives you a lot of... A lot of perspective on stuff. And I think Joan is one of those characters who has had plenty of perspective. I mean, I think most characters have now, but Joan in particular, yeah, um, she has a perspective on the way she was and she's not super happy about it. Yeah. And I like the, what she said there is the game. She played the game until the game played her. I mean, yeah. Joan did everything correctly. You I know? mean, my question would be, would she still be playing the game if she, if she hadn't gotten what she wanted out of, that's that. where I was going. Like, what if uh, her rapist husband turned out to be a nice guy and was a doctor and she got everything that she dreamed of? Yeah. Does she give a shit about the plight? Of, I mean, you know, that's a trite observation that, like, you don't care about a problem until the problem hits home. Yeah. It's like where you see a lot but of, pol- a true a lot of politicians get religion about gay rights when it turns out that, oh, their daughter's gay or yeah. their nephew's gay or, mm-hmm. 
you know, it's different about your your thoughts on war if one of your sons or daughters is shipping off. So that it's that's not a condemnation of her at all. It's just no. the way people are. Yeah. Moving on. Sonia D.A. said, I'm getting tired of seeing the women paid off. How many female characters does the wiener want to destroy for us in the end? Jane, Megan, and now Joan. They all left and took the money. And let's not forget Sylvia, who paid back the favor, too. This horrible treatment of women in the workplace is an important factor of these times, and I appreciate seeing it on screen, but why couldn't this story be about the fight? The fight that so many women led, that my own mother led, the majority of women stayed and fought and did not have the luxury of being paid off. I'd have loved to see Joan go to war, but maybe there's hope yet. And how many humiliations must Joan suffer for the way she made partner? We get it. Peggy is righteous and Joan must be punished time and again. That's what the money is for, right? Pretty harsh take on the material. What do you think about that? I don't know, man. I don't I don't know if this show has that message in it. I think that's why they don't go there is because it's not what the show's about. The show's about understanding yourself and, and living your life through Don's eyes. No, and it's... it has these tangents and it has these tinges of other topics in it, but I don't think ultimately the show is about uh, female rights or race relations or any of that stuff. Any more than it was about environmentalism when they showed sure. Betty and Don wrecking a park, you know? Yeah. That's a weird, and Mad Men's always kind of been vulnerable to like accusations of being very shallow about those areas, but yeah, you're yeah. right. It's, it's not about solving racism or toxic max masculinity or, you know, distant parenting. It's more about showing it and inviting us all to feel, you know, to just basically have an opinion and feel about it. Yeah. And I'm fine with the show asking questions that it doesn't care to answer. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I like most maybe, of my media that way. Maybe we're by not by being a very soft touch on that. Maybe that does more to change than a very preachy show. Maybe. I mean, you don't, you, you know, the daily show doesn't change anybody's mind, right? It's more preaching to the choir. Yeah. Yeah. So, who knows? Uh, ben R has some meta Easter eggs uh, for from for us from the last episode. Said Ferg's impersonation of Don is not just a horrible impersonation of Don Draper, but it's more appropriately a poor impersonation of Richard Nixon, as we pointed out. In season one, Don identified with Nixon's story as a self-made man who was governor of California. The real Don Draper was also from California, <laughs> so this might have been a sly poke at Don's backstory. Yeah. Also, he said Roger referencing his drink card as one of his personal belongings that was stolen uh, with Matt, uh, which in real life, Matthew Weiner actually took from the studios. Okay. So that was kind of, I think, a nice touch, too. Yeah. So thanks for pointing those out for us, Ben. Mario D said, never in a million years, but how great would it be when Richard said, or you can call a guy that Matt Weiner was, or Matt Weiner was engineering a brief cameo of Uncle Junior and young Tony Soprano. <laughs> Even if they just greeted a confused Ferg as he got out of work one day and took him for a little walk. Uh, are they in, like, their teens or something? It would have to be. Yeah. It's like, uh, come on, what's the matter with you? <laughs> hey, I'm oh! Yeah. Yeah, you trying to give sure. Joan 50 cents? How much on the dot? 50 cents? Hey! <laughs> yeah, I could, I, I could get behind that. Uh-huh. Uh, Justin F. said, just listening to your Mad Men happy hour and you were wondering how current day McCann Erickson felt about the portrayal of Mad Men... Thought you might enjoy this. He sent a link to the Twitter where they said, uh, hello, Don, welcome to the dark side of the picture of Darth Vader. So, yeah, I think that's the best way you can handle it. 
Make a joke. Make a joke about it, mm-hmm. and 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 take it good naturedly. So you don't if you if you overreact and you're defensive, it makes people think, oh Jesus, kind of hellholes McCann nowadays. Yeah. Uh, listener Levi wrote in and sent us a sweet picture of a ma- the ma- um, a, rec- a recreation of the Mad Men logo that he made with Legos. Hmm. I'm gonna put that okay. in the show notes if people want to check it out because I'm a Lego fan and it's pretty cool. Cool. Uh, Lisa LL came back for a second helping for this current episode. She says, Betty has never been more alive than when she was preparing to face the end of her life. Her acceptance of death has transformed her. My mom died of cancer and I wish she had had the presence of mind that Betty had when she gave Sally clear instructions for a burial and unconditional love for the future. I, she said parenthetically, I think I just said my, I wish my mom were more like Betty. Hmm. (laughs) Uh, Well, Betty has changed. Sure. Quite a bit. Sure. And uh, fill out your wills, people. If you got if you got kids or family, it's a good idea. All right. Uh, I went back and watched the pilot for the ten thousandth time, and the scene where Don is fl- flailing in front of the Lucky Strike execs, trying to come up with strategy on the fly, he launches into one of his reveries about what happiness is. Don says happiness is the billboard on the side of the road that screams reassurance that whatever you are doing is okay. You are okay. Thinking back two episodes ago, when Roger took Don's face in his hands, gave him a big, big kiss, and said, "You are okay." You are okay. I think any ending that Don finds uh, that has a big smile on his face like that one at the end of this episode will be the most satisfying for me. Agreed. All right. I don't need to know that Don's okay. I just would like to know that he has the uh, capability of being okay. Yeah, I like that. Catherine, I think it's worth noting that it was Mother's Day in 1960 when Betty said in reference to Joan Crawford, to think one of the great beauties, and there she is, so old. I'd like to just disappear at that point. It hmm. makes perfect sense from the episode Babylon, which was season one, episode six. And it was Mother's Day in 2015 when Matthew Weiner ripped my heart out by allowing her wish to come to fruition. In episode 50 years in the making. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's there's a lot of this stuff. Uh, also, the you know, when when Betty found out her father was dying. She said to her, you know, him, you're, I'm your child. Why, why can't you keep this to myself? She's very cold with him. Hmm. But now she's being, you know, she's, I, I, there's a, there's a lot of echoes and callbacks that as people point them out to me, I'm just really impressed with uh, how the, how the wiener is pulling this stuff off, man. Yeah. No, this team of writers seems to do that frequently and it, it works. Uh, T Mills from Minnesota said, we knew we could feel, or who knew we could feel so much pain for a character whose flaws have provided some of the most uncomfortable moments of the last seven seasons. Betty first bought with a dire drop. Wait, Betty first brought bought with a dire prognosis. Oh, geez. I can't pronounce this. Betty's first bout with a dire prognosis came in season five's tea leaves. When Betty goes to the doctor for diet pills and find the troubling growth on her lymph nodes mm-hmm. from there, she confines in her friend that she has had dream of what her family looked like after her death. And she wondered how they do without her. Perhaps a reflective acceptance of this quick exit from earth is pillowed by the realization that Sally's going to be okay. Her calmly confident composure spanning from diagnosis through discussion with Sally shows that Don- Betty has in fact developed and matured. She knows and understands her place in the world, and she's going to embrace it for as long as she has left. She's fought many fights, and she knows how to pick her battles. Yeah, indeed. I mean, I I agree with all that. 
the dramatic irony of Don's absence during this non-malignant development leaves the audience on the seat of their chairs, wondering how he'll respond to the news of his ex-wife's so certain passing. Mm. We assume he's thinking of his time with Betty in Italy as he walks by the Burnett at the pool reading The Woman of Rome. On the heels of last episode's moment, I got to believe Betty's death will crush Don and force him to either embrace his role as a father or flee further from Don Draper into another new life. Knock him dead, Bertie. So how will Don react to this news? Will we get to Don reacting? Or will we stay in this one day where Don gets to be a hobo before he finds out he's now responsible solely for these kids? Oof. Uh, yeah, will will her death crush him? I don't know that I agree that it will crush Don. Um, but he does, I do agree with that choice that he has to make. He has to be a father or he has to be a grifter and a drifter and a hobo. Uh, I don't, I don't, I kind of don't want to see it. I kind of want this last episode to be about Don discovering himself apart from all the other stuff that he's got going on, which is very little now. He has no job. I agree. Like, it feels like the date we could I, end I'm not going to be disappointed if they do, but... Yeah, but on the other hand, I keep coming back to how much groundwork they've laid with this cancer and Rachel dying of cancer and... Indeed, yeah. It's going to feel weird not to have him with his kids or interacting with his kids, but that would tell, that would be a different kind of ending. And I'm not, you know, Don ending happy and hopeful with also dealing with Betty. It seems like there's no way to jam those two things together. That's what I was thinking. That's not chocolate and peanut butter. That's not two tastes to go together. So, and the one that you really want is the hopeful Don. And you right? just wonder how the Matthew Weiner is going to pull it off, but. Uh, if anyone can, it's him. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. I don't know what he gets up to next episode, but I'm super excited to see it. Uh, let's moving on to Jen Symes. The latest episode, uh, the milk and honey route is a reference to the book of the same name, the milk and honey route, a handbook for hobos by Nels Anderson. Mm -hmm. In it, he writes the road, the real hobo follows is never ending. It's always heading into the sunset of promise, but it never fully keeps its promise. <laughs> Thus, the road the hobo roams always beckons him on, much as it does the undealt card in a game of stud. Every new bend of the road is disillusioning, but never disappointing, so that once you get the spirit of the hobo, you never reach the stone wall of utter disillusionment. Disillusionment. You follow on, hopefully, from one bend of the road to another, until at the end you step off a cliff. Could it be a reference to Don's fate or the Wiener's take on the series as a whole? Yes. It comes it, down to how you interpret stepping off a cliff. Is this a suicide thing with Hawaii or is this like stepping off a cliff can also be a leap of faith, a life affirming thing. Yeah. And I, I mean the, the relentless never ending March is kind of what I'm, what I'm taking out of that and applying to Don. It seems like that has been the path that he's on. Uh, and, and despite, you know, whatever hope there is at the end, it's going to continue. It's not like, this is going to be the end of his life. I don't think. Um, so, so that's, that seems very applicable to Don. Yeah. You know, he's, he doesn't know what's coming next, but it's something's coming next and he's going to deal with it. Um, he's going to try and figure out what he wants, even though that may not be possible. You know, you know, we said something about breaking bad, like the final three seat, the final three episodes were kind of a choose your own adventure. Okay. Do you want like an 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 awesome feel good ending? Then you stop watching here. Do you want a bleak, dark, 
tea time of the soul, then you watch this episode. Do you want, you know, depending on what you want, you could pick one of those three episodes of finale. I kind of wonder if these last two, these last three are going to work similarly. Because if you want the the triumphant, awesome ending, you could stop last episode. If you, but if you want like the heartwarming, you know, bittersweet kind of uh, Wonder Years version of Mad Men, you could stop at this episode, which leaves mm-hmm. us the, you know, what the hell is next week going to be? Because the suicide <laughs> too much time. There's too much time for them to not have some like, kind of like long involved road trip process with Don. But on mm-hmm. the other hand, narratively, there's only a day for him to have this carefree hobo existence like would it be satisfied if he does like this one last day where he's a carefree hobo at the end he calls in sally and we just see him go from smiling to you know wonder years dad face and says i'll be right there (laughs) hangs up fade to black uh god damn it that turns what would be a satisfying hopeful ending into a kind of scary one I, I mean, personally, it's I, weird. I don't they got want this, that. But. They, got this ver- they got this Berlin of too much time and not enough time. There's too much time. You're, you're assuming that we're not going to jump ahead at all. You're right. Mad Men never does the next day. Not it's always we like weeks and months. Even when it doesn't seem possible for them to do that, they always do. So, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know that they're going to go just into the next day here. Yeah. Like Don's not going to. I don't think Don's going to be stepping on a bus on that bus stop the next episode. I think some time will have passed. He'll have found out about it and it'll be something, it'll be a question of how he deals with it. Yeah. Potentially. Uh, I I do want to know who the fuck in the writer's room is sitting around reading the hobo code stuff from the 1930s. Like, how do you dig up? How are they getting (laughs) any of this stuff? It's amazing. Like, I get it that like the older you get, the more kind of pop culture, pop culture, pop culture (laughs) knowledge you just accumulate. And when you got a writer's room full of well-read, interesting people, but damn, yeah, this, this is a deep cut. No matter how you slice it, but the right? other thing is, this is this is the Wiener's magnum opus. He has been writing this since before Sopranos, so you can imagine that, like, he sees okay. something like, "Oh, I see this guy's a hobo." Oh, there's a book on hobos. I'll read, and he's just filing, you know, sticking post-it notes and chapters. And in the off season, like all the writers are just, yeah, just. Yeah, but I think it's also a lot of this probably comes direct from Matt Weiner. He has been this has been the story he's wanted yeah. to tell for a long, long time. So indeed, uh, Dan from Manchester said people always discuss Don's dying because of the opening titles, but I think they suggest something else. We see a man abandoning his suitcase and then falling through his life as it was blown apart before landing relaxed and composed in his chair. Uh, he predicts he'll finally Don will finally find himself in next week's episode, and the last shot will be the same as the end of the titles which is the opening shot of the pilot. The back of Don's head, happy and relaxed, sat on a chair, possibly surrounded by his kids now that Betty may die before the show ends. What do you think of that? That's a good... A lot of people... Drink. That, I think we talked about this once before, that all these, like Don will jump off the roof. Yeah, yeah. Never... They always forget about the end of the credit sequence, which is after a series of tumultuous events, this man lies. Or he, he ends up right side up, very relaxed and confident. Yeah. Safe and sound. Uh, that that would be on the nose. I'm I'm not. I don't know if if Weiner wants to go there. Like like how on the nose do you think this ending is going to be? Would it literally be that shot? Like the emailer is asking. There's the start of the I, pilot. I There's that's an interesting visual bookend. So instead of him in his office with just 
Yeah. It just is work around. I don't like cigarette. I don't like that just because I can see a million clickbait BuzzFeed articles. You won't believe the you know amazing coincidence about Mad Men and it's like, oh Christ. Nineteen things you didn't know about Mad Men. Yes, yes, yes. There's one little trick that Don Draper uses to sell tobacco. (laughs) It's toothpaste. No, one weird trick. Yeah, it's toothpaste on a bee sting. Exactly. Don't don't be fooled. Uh, Mike Winter has an interesting take. Uh, He quotes Pete and uh, Trudy's back and forth. We'll have a plane to use at your disposal to pick up and go anywhere, anytime we want, like driving to Montauk. Mm -hmm. He is a huge fan of Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. And if you haven't seen that movie, you should see it. But it's, you know, essentially about two people that went through a breakup and they get their minds wiped and then they fall back in love with each other. Anyway, he says in the movie, just the last of Joel's memories of Clementine are being taken from his mind. He hears her say, meet me in Montauk. Sometimes shortly after his procedure, he goes to Montauk, not really sure why, and meets Clementine again. And they start over again, leading us to believe that they've probably done this a few times and that they are doomed to repeat the same results of an ugly breakup and having the procedure and eventually rekindling. Great movie. Is it possible that this quote-unquote happy ending, it seems Pete and Trudy are set up for, is a farce and like driving the Montauk line as proof that they too are doomed in a rinse-and-repeat style relationship? Is Matthew Weiner referencing Eternal Sunshine? We'll never know, right? I mean, unless he says, sure. Um, but <sighs> you know what? Bill Simmons said something interesting oh, in his okay. podcast. He says, I hate this modern age of television because I hate the postmortems that the producers and the writers engage in because he likes it. Hmm. I, you know, and as a writer and a student of pop culture, it's like, I like that I, if I can assemble a case that fits the narrative and then I can have this idea of what happens. And I hate when a creator says, nope. Nope, word of God says this. Like, I wish they would just shut up and let the work stand on its own. Kind of agree. Uh, yeah, I, I mostly agree with him on that, but I don't think that's the majority of fans. I think those post- postmortems are popular for a reason. Sure. Because people are looking for explanations in what is a sea of pop culture now. We do like the. I mean, instant, if you we look, like the we like being things being definitive and tied up in neat and bows. Yeah, and and let's take a cross reference of pop culture and the phrase Montag. Hmm. there's probably a hundred thousand mentions of Montauk somewhere in pop culture. Does he mean all of them? I don't know. Even Rocky had a Montauk. <laughs> oh God. Daniel. <laughs> Daniel S says in the penultimate episode of the series, we finally see Don's destiny not to continue down an alcoholic spiral, not to return to Madison Avenue, certainly not to transform into DP Cooper, uh, but rather something far more pedestrian and important to be father to his two sons. With the impending death of Betty, Don will take custody of his sons, move to somewhere in middle America, give them the childhood he never had as a single, if not celibate father. His interaction with the hotel employee and thief shows that he is happiest as a father figure. He's allowed, and it also is kind of, uh, he's done the same thing with Glenn, you know, like he let him drive the caddy in that point instead of just taking it outright. But, uh, it's not as glamorous or as artistically interesting as other possible in- endings, but it's satisfying and appropriate end to Don's character arc. Uh, what do you think? Don retiring to middle America to raise his sons. Uh, I think he said he's okay. not throwing what? Sally in here because Sally's going to be off to college and she's almost sure. Grown. Yeah. Uh-huh. All right. Uh, what if I don't, this might be dark. I don't know. What if he takes, he, he's apartmentless. He's homeless right now. 
What if he takes his kids and he moves back into the house that he showed him at the end of last season? I I love that. Yeah. I love that. That's not scarring, potentially scarring for these kids. He grew up in a completely unhappy home, in this literal home. But if he like literal extreme house. makeover style, if he okay. uses his bare right. hands and fixes this up and turns it into a family house again, uh-huh. and uses his millions to like revitalize the the neighborhood, that would be cool. I don't think that's what we're getting. No, but think it so? would be cool. Okay. Yeah. All right. No, it's too pat. I, I think the the. I think the wiener is going to go something more emotionally ambiguous and bittersweet and hopeful, but You're probably right, some yeah. dark storm clouds or to make you worry too. Mm-hmm. That's my read. Uh, final email, Sherry, Betty had a sca- cancer scare back in season five, episode three tea leaves. When a node is discovered on her thyroid, this is back in 1966. And when she couldn't reach Henry, Betty turned to Don. She was hysterical already imagining the worst. Don tried to get her to calm down, but she couldn't, and she asked him to reassure her that everything would be okay. Henry resented her reliance on Don and, was kept, and kept him in the dark when they later got the good news that the tumor was benign. This time, when she shares the news with Henry, she doesn't get hysterical, uh, like the woman in the book she was reading last week. She accepts the news, rather, and chooses to live the rest of her life on her own terms. Last time, she was scared off the prospect her children, or excuse me, Last time she's scared of the prospect her children would be raised by Henry's stern mother or Don's wife, but now she seems comfortable that they will be okay. At least they won't be raised by Megan. Amen. Back in season five, Betty met a friend who did have cancer, and she asked her what it was like. I wonder if her answer is part of what led Betty to make a decision not to prolong the inevitable, and she quotes, Well, it's like when you're out in the ocean alone and you're paddling and you see people on the shore, but they're getting further and further away. And you struggle because it's natural, but then your mind wanders back to everything normal. What am I going to fix for dinner? Did I lock the back door? And then you just get so tired, you just give in and hope you go straight down. Hmm. Cheerful way to end the podcast. Yeah. But Betty has learned, and just going to college, you know, like she had the book on hysteria and she didn't act hysterical. She has gone through some genuine character growth. Absolutely. And I I wouldn't. I wouldn't care about her story arc if she hadn't. And, you know, it would be like there's a lot of cancer in the show, but it would kind of be a minor miracle if there wasn't. Everyone's smoking and drinking and eating red meat and I don't know, huffing Uh, radon. No one knows about radon. Like eating lead paint. Yeah. Like it's not just thematically appropriate. It's like biologically inevitable. Yeah. So that's all I got. Uh, it was quite a lot, though, and it's all great takes. Um, don't freak out if you don't get your email in next week. In fact, take some time because we're going to have a series wrap-up spectacular the week after where we kind of go back and talk about our favorite episodes and uh, you know, kind of make peace with the fact we're not going to have any more Mad Men in our life. Because I tell you what, before the show started, my cable box somehow had some weird data in it that made it look like that they were going to do back to backs. Yeah, yeah. Episodes seven thirteen and seven fourteen, and I'm like, I am not ready. Number one, as a podcaster, <laughs> I don't know that I've got it in me to do two monster Mad Men episodes in a row. Number yeah. two, I'm not emotionally ready to be like, I had another week. God damn it. I had another week. I was going Henry on this stuff. I wanted to pursue other options and 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 <laughs> I'm how call can we? A guy. How, I'm going to call a guy. I'm going to sue this Time Warner company. Uh, turns out it was just fucked up, but it's it's going to be brutal, man. Like 
I was bummed out for a couple days after Breaking Bad was over. Yeah. Yeah, I, I miss Breaking Bad desperately. Um, Boardwalk Empire, you were not, you know, not happy to see that one go? I wasn't, but I don't know. I have a lot of complex emotions about Boardwalk Empire. All right. You put me on a spot, goddammit. Yeah, we're, we're, we're losing a lot of shows lately. Sure. Justified. Uh-huh. I didn't feel bad about Justified. Justified made me just feel kind of like good. Yeah, Justified seemed like it had played through its course. But Mad Men, by its nature, it's open-ended, and it's about the, like like Sally said, it's about the drama and the tragedy, that it's going to feel like there's a little hole missing where some of the other shows that kind of tie up into a bow, I don't think will. Yeah, so. okay. But anyway, okay. yeah, Mad Men at BaldMove.com. We got our forums at forums at BaldMove.com if you want to talk about it over there, if you need some emotional support. Uh, I can leave you some last instructions for when the show's over. A okay. thread. Don't visit the thread. No, they're going to. They're going until to. Until the minute you know Mad Men's over. Nope. Damn it. Damn it, Sally. Uh, <laughs> you also you can also follow our complete release schedule on Facebook.com slash BaldMove and Twitter at BaldMove. And hell, BaldMove.com. Why not throw it in there, too? Do it all, man. It's the last one. This is yep. the last new Mad Men we're going to get. It's a supersized hour, 15-minute episode. It's the last one. Savor it. We'll get through it together. Yeah, and tr- truly savor it. Eat it slowly. As yeah, like you would. I can't do that either. Steak. I can't. I, I pause can't. it every five minutes. There you go. There Take you a go. five minute break. Every scene, just pause it. Discuss mm-hmm. amongst yourselves. All right, that's what we'll be doing next week. Pretty much. Uh, next three Tuesday. hour podcast next week. I think so. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, thanks everybody for listening. We'll see you then. Until then, I'm Jim. I'm Aaron. See ya. Mm-hmm.